Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here to talk about stuff. This week on the show, we're just shooting the shit. We're talking about stuff. We're catching up because the show hasn't been off. Uh, we did have an episode last week, our very belated review of Annihilation. Yes. Because you didn't see it for a couple of weeks and then we recorded it a week later and then we saved that episode for later. So Yeah, anyway. that, I mean, that was an episode that while we were recording it, we did not know when that episode was going to go up, which yeah. is fun. So, you know, but you got an episode last week, so no one's complaining. But this week we are back, we are live, we are recording this the night before it's coming out. And so we're just going to catch up on a bunch of stuff. We've got a little bit of news. Uh, I've seen some movies that I want to tell you guys about, including A Wrinkle in Time and the Tomb Raider movie. I It feels like that Wrinkle in Time movie came out like five months ago, dude, with the way the news cycle has been recently. It's been kind of crazy. Yeah. We have some TV stuff to catch up on. You are finally going to give us your thoughts on The X-Files Season 11. Yes, which, had, which finished airing a couple of days ago from our recording this. And yep. Yes. We've played some new video games. I've played Kirby Star Allies uh, and a little bit of Detective Pikachu. Uh, I've only been playing old video games because I've been playing Burnout Paradise Remastered. But it's a new release. It's a new release of what is probably still the best racing game ever made. I, I would like to play that game. It's very good. I wish it was on Switch. Because um, that's where I'm playing everything now. My Xbox is in a box and my PS4 cannot figure out an internet connection right now. So don't know what to do with that thing. Uh, you realize some of these systems are bricks when they cannot get online. Sure, yeah. But yes, uh, I hope I figure it out before God of War comes out. Or at least God of War doesn't have a big day one patch. One of the two. But I, one of those is not happening. Everything has a big day one patch these yes. days. Um, Alright, anyway, we're going to talk about all of that. Uh, we should say housekeeping. We just recorded our March uh, Doctor Who bonus episode. Yes, we're very... Our dedication of having that come out in the middle of the month, each month, we're very good at that. <laughs> We're, we are it's March 25th yes. as we're recording this. Yeah, so that'll be coming out. Uh, yeah, very... God, these are... Uh, I didn't even realize, Sean, what time of the month it was. It's just... It's bad. It's almost April, but it will technically be coming out in March, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. But, you know, that is a consistent month from the last one. But, yes, our March episode, this is the eighth one. We are talking about the seventh Doctor, Sylvester McCoy, and the story Ghost Light. It is a great Doctor Who serial. If you have not been keeping up with these... Watch Ghostlight. Go find it online. Great story. And then listen to our podcast because it was a really fun one. Yeah, that, I enjoyed recording that podcast a lot. There's so much in Ghostlight to dig out. There's a lot of fun moments. There's a lot of dark moments. There's a lot of soul searching happening. There's some dramatic reading of dialogue. Great time. Great time. It's, uh, it's a fun one. So go ahead and listen to that. That'll be out this Wednesday, uh, the 28th. Yeah, that'll be the yes. 28th of March. You will have that as our end of March present to our listeners. So that's that. And uh, you'll hear at the end of that, because that's the end of the TV run of Doctor Who in the 20th century. So, you know, you'll hear what our plans are if we're doing any more with that. So yeah. you'll, you'll have to listen to that podcast to find out. Um, but yeah, anything else we should say, Sean, before we jump into things? Any, like, non-movie game or TV stuff we should share? Nah, man. A million kids and other people marched oh, yes. for gun violence in D.C.? That was pretty... Not for gun violence. <laughs> against gun violence. They, you know, I'm sure there were some people marching for gun violence. There always is. You know, but... There's uh, always one of those stragglers. But no, uh, very inspiring and cool, and teenagers are awesome right now. Yes. Not all of them. Many of them, though. But defying the usual narrative that teenagers always suck, sometimes they don't. No. And in fact, these teenagers do not suck at all, really. Yeah. They, they, they the opposite of whatever that is. They, they unsuck. They unsuck. It's very cool. Um, there were some quality signs at the marches. Yes. It really has been one of the best things about protest culture in the last year. 
is that it has brought out the best of people's creativity in making signs. Yeah, it's some next level sign game. It's 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 some it's some special stuff. Yeah, it has made Twitter more tolerable than it's been in recent days. Which is an achievement. <laughs> Although as we're recording this, uh a porn star is on CNN talking about her affair with the President of the United States. Because that's where we are. You know? Yep. Now I understand what people, you know, who were adults in like the late 90s were feeling with the Clinton stuff. To a degree. Not that bad. Yeah. But like, yeah, it is it is weird. But that's also like the least surprising or shocking thing that has happened with the White House oh, abso- this week. Absolutely. It is just, you think about it like, you know, we did have... Two presidents in a row who... George Bush had his flaws. Never had an affair with a porn star. As Barack, far as we know. Barack Obama did the drone strike thing. Not happy about that. Never had an affair with a porn star. As far as, far we, as, know. as we know. You know, never had to deal with that. It's, uh, it's weird. It's yeah. weird. World's weird. Let's talk about some news, Sean. Let's talk about some... Stupid news. Stupid news. Yeah, yes. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that on the outline because it, like we used to be, be able to just call this news and y'all got it. This is yeah. the, the entertainment stuff that we talk about. I'm gonna call it the stupid news now because that's all we can say. So what's going on in the stupid news, Jonathan? Uh, I think in conjunction with the new Tomb Raider movie, which we're talking about later. Oh yes, the new Tomb Raider video game was finally announced. It's been an open secret. Yeah, I feel like two. It was almost like two years ago that somebody took like a screenshot of someone else's laptop on like a subway or something that just said Shadow of the Tomb Raider on it. It was like they're making another Tomb Raider game. Yes, uh, it is called Shadow of the Tomb Raider. It has been formally announced for September fourteenth. They're doing some kind of weird ARG thing to reveal the trailer, so we still don't actually have like footage of the game. But I'm going to guess it looks a lot like the last two Tomb Raider games they made, with probably like some new weapons and new story and locations and stuff. Yeah, I mean, the first two are great. I'm very excited to have a third. I'm excited that this new one is not uh, tied to a dead console walking oh, in right, its exclusi- yeah. exclusivity. I'm almost surprised they didn't just say like this is not coming to Xbox One, like as retribution, just like. Fuck you guys You almost sunk this franchise yeah. We're done with you But they didn't do that It's coming to Xbox One PS4 PC uh, I'm very excited Have you played Rise of the Tomb Raider yet? No Like that's a game I've been meaning to get to Like basically since it came out On the PS4 And just like Never have kind of Gotten around to it Because yeah. again like Don't want to go All the way into detail But you know I tried to play That Tomb Raider 1 Like new Tomb Raider reboot When they did the re-release On PS4 and then that catastrophically failed when the game hit a game-breaking bug that meant that I could not load my save anymore, which is about as game-breaking as a bug could possibly be in a video game when your save file is just like you're like like corrupted beyond you being able to get it, um, which was something that happened to a lot of people. There was forums of very angry people. I was one of those angry people. Uh, but then I discovered Digimon Story Cyber Sleuth literally because of that, because that night I was very frustrated. I think it's all worth it. And so it, it, everything worked out in the end. And I'm, I think that Shadow of the Tomb Raider coming out will finally, like, motivate me to play Rise of the Tomb Raider and maybe, like, watch the last cutscene from that Tomb Raider game that I never got to sh- I mean, they're so good. They're worth playing. And I would love to be able to finally talk about one of these when it's new and both yeah. of us on the podcast. So that should be a good goal for September. That's good. I'm glad that they didn't announce this for, you know, November or October. Right, <laughs> September's yeah. good. Good. No one releases games in September. That's good. That's yeah. better. That's better. But yes, uh, that's coming out. I am disappointed. It's not called Dawn of the Tomb Raider. So we could do the same thing the Planet of the Apes movies did and have Rise of the Tomb Raider and Dawn of the Tomb Raider and just confuse the fuck out of everyone. Yeah, because I mean, it would be Tomb Raider, Rise of the Tomb Raider... Dawn of the Tomb Raider would be an extremely confusing series of titles. And finally, War for the Planet of the Tomb Raider. (laughs) 
That would be... I would love for that to just be, like, some crazy twist happens at the end of this next game where there are a million Laura Croft clones are made (laughs) and take over the planet. No, but I, uh... After that Tomb Raider movie, which is not terrible, but I have things to say about it, uh, I really wanted to play a Tomb Raider video game. So I'm happy a new one's coming out. And uh, this one is not being done by Crystal Dynamics. We knew that. It's because they're making their Avengers game, which will probably be awesome. Yeah, I'm curious to find out more about the Avengers game because it's been in development for a while since they teased it. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm guessing they don't want to step on the Spider-Man thing coming out. That's a good point. So I think once that's out, we'll probably hear more because they're probably staggering that. But uh, Eidos Montreal, which had helped on the other ones, is is heading this one. So it's going to be interesting to see if they can kind of keep up the momentum of this series. But uh, yeah, I'm excited to see. It's a dumb title. Shadow of the Tomb Raider yeah. makes no fucking sense. But oh well. Who cares? You know, there have been a lot of Tomb Raider games. You just come up with something and throw it out there. Yeah. You know, it works. All right. Sean, another video game announcement. This is relevant to us because we love these games. Uh, a Sega Genesis collection has been announced for the PS4 and Xbox One. Have you mm, seen this? I've not seen this. Yeah, it's it's the same thing as what we had on the 360 back in the day. It's 50 Sega Genesis games, all in HD. They'll have save points, all of those sorts of things. It's coming out May 29th. It has pretty much everything that was in that collection on the Xbox 360 and uh, PC, except, and this is the weirdest thing, it does not have Sonic 3 or Sonic and Knuckles. What? It just has Sonic 1 and 2. It has all the other stuff. It's got all your Streets of Rage, all your Echo the Dolphin. Actually, it might have, they might have taken Echo the Dolphin off, which is also the other omission. But it's, it's a lot of Sega Genesis games. Sega Genesis games are good. I'm glad there's a collection coming out. I don't know why Sonic 3 isn't there. And I also legitimately... I know it's become a dumb like meme online. What the fuck are they doing not having a Nintendo Switch version of this? Like, seriously. Yeah, yeah. It's just, this, yeah. yeah, that's, it's like, and I understand, like, there's some games, like, if I said that about Red Dead Redemption 2, I'd be an idiot. Yeah. But I'm not. I'm saying it about this Sega Genesis collection where, honestly, it would probably sell best on the Nintendo Switch given all the sales things we've seen going on with that system. Right. And I just, this cannot be difficult to port to the Nintendo Switch. You know? So that does annoy me. Like, this seems like it should have been a more exciting announcement. Like that Street Fighter thing they're doing. Yeah, that's on Switch and PS4 and Xbox One, so it can be done. Um, I'm glad they're doing the set overall. Yeah. I will probably wait for it on Switch, but um, it is cool that they're doing it because Sega Genesis games. There's a lot of good ones. Yes, I am looking at the list now. I see that, that Gunstar Heroes is on it, which is a very good game, and Light Crusader is on it, which I feel like is a a Sega Genesis game that nobody knows exists. It is one of the like dozen Sega Genesis games that I own, and it is a weird ass fucking like isometric action RPG that's like vaguely Diablo-esque, but there, there's no loot, but it's very much you start in a town and go through a dungeon that's like in that town and keep on going down, down, down into that dungeon. So Light Crusader is a game that if you get this, check it out, because I don't think Light Crusader was on any of those other collections. So. Nice. Uh, is Streets of Rage on there? Yes, all three Streets of okay, Rage good. are on there. Yeah. Yes. It's just that like, the new generation of consoles, they've been great in a lot of ways. Other than the Xbox One with its backwards compatibility, they've all been pretty shit at like carrying stuff over. You know, Mm -hmm. uh, other than like in remasters. And we got to a point in the last generation pretty early where we had access to all these games. We haven't on our PS4s and stuff. So I'm glad to have these uh, in a nice new form because these are worth playing. Yes. Also, Toe Jam and Earl, which is a cool game, is on there. Unfortunately, they also decided to include the terrible sequel, Toe Jam and Earl, in Panic on Funkatron. Well, they gotta, they gotta fill yes. the space, Sean. You know, I mean, yes. you know, I'm not gonna, you know, you can put all the games on there, it's fine, but, you know, just, 
if you play Toe Jam and Earl, you're like, fucking Toe Jam and Earl is awesome and, like, weirdly revolutionary for its time in terms of it's, like, it's basically, like, a roguelike in a more modern model than, but it was made in, like, the early 90s. Don't be excited about playing the sequel to that game because it's nothing like that. All right. Uh, like more, talk. more Sega news. Sonic Mania Plus has been announced. Yep. This is new DLC and a full physical release for Sonic Mania, which was on both of our top ten lists last year yep. for the year of 2017. Great game. Great game. Uh, it will have new modes, including new playable characters, Mighty and Ray, who are both from Sonic... Some, what are they from? Um, I'm trying to remember. Uh, they are from Sega Sonic the Hedgehog, a 1993 arcade game, according to Polygon.com. Okay, it's a deep cut. They didn't yes, go with like Knuckles pretty... Chaotix or something. They uh, no, they cut deep, but they it's, look cool. It's like how they pulled the like like Bean and all the like, those weird characters from Sonic Fighters for yes. that uh, the saloon level. Yeah, but uh, I mean, adding new playable characters to the game that you can like do the whole campaign with—that's nuts, and that's really cool. And I am excited to get this DLC. Uh, uh, the physical release that they're going to have for this game is awesome. It has cool reversible cover art that will allow you to have it look like a Sega Genesis case. And now I'm sad I own the game digitally yeah. because I can't. Well, I mean, I could. No one's going to stop me. You know, my I wallet would probably. Me. Someone would give me side eye for it. But yeah, no, uh, it's cool. And if you haven't played Sonic Mania, just pick it up. It's awesome. You should play it. It's great. Uh, and Sega also, in a very brief teaser video, Hinted at a new Sonic racing game. Specifically, they used the logo of Sonic R. Yes. So, who the hell knows? They had uh, that Sonic and All-Stars racing series that they did a couple of. I've actually only played that on my iPhone because I got it for free on there. And those are fine. It's a just a Mario Kart ripoff. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be an actual like Sonic R but with effort put in. And maybe with the same soundtrack, that'd be cool. But we don't really know anything about yeah. it. No, it's I'm, I'm looking up the lyrics to the Supersonic Racing song because you reminded me when you said Sonic R. Um, everybody, everybody, everybody. <laughs> just like there's a whole block of the lyrics that just says everybody, 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 everybody. Yes, it's so, a great song. Listen to the Supersonic Racing song from Sonic R. Sonic R. The soundtrack for Sonic R is on iTunes. It's seven ninety nine. I remember that because I fucking bought it when I discovered that. It's great. Yeah, it's an amazing soundtrack. If this is more in the Sonic R vein and not in the like Sonic Racing Transformed and all those games vein, they need to make a soundtrack that is like that, or or I'm not showing up for anything. Sean, you know who they should get for that soundtrack? Who should they get? They should get my, bo- my boy Lotus Juice. Yes, they should get from, Lotus Juice from the Persona games. He get. could. He could do it. Yes, Everybody. Sonic R two. Featuring Lotus Juice. Featuring on the box, it should be a picture of him <laughs> racing with Sonic. I want to see like billboards of Lotus Juice with like sunglasses holding a like boxed copy of the game and pointing at it and smiling. Like yes. that's what I want to see. All right, um, let's see. Uh, we're going through all the news pretty fast. Another one here. This is just cool. Black Panther. Yes, a movie we love is as of this weekend, as of this recording, it is now the all-time highest-grossing superhero film. In the United States, it has surpassed the Avengers, which also makes it the highest grossing MCU movie, which Avengers had $623 million. Black Panther is at $630 million. Keep in mind, this is just domestic. Yeah. It has similar foreign receipts. It's at like $1.3 billion. It is now the fifth highest grossing movie in United States history, domestically, behind Jurassic World, Titanic, Avatar, and Star Wars The Force Awakens. It will almost certainly overtake Jurassic World. It could overtake Titanic. 
Uh, it is a virtually unparalleled success by just about any metric. You know, its foreign foreign earnings are not as high as maybe some like uh, of these biggest movies, although it almost matches the domestic. And overall, that is huge, especially when you consider the dominant narrative in Hollywood for years is that movies with black actors don't travel and that other countries don't watch them, which... But, you know, another dominant narrative in Hollywood has been movies with black people don't make money yes. at all. So, yeah. so, like, the narrative has just been, like, let's try to come up with a narrative that makes it so we don't have to hire black people. I really vacillate between thinking, God, this is the coolest thing on earth that Black Panther has made all this money and broken down all these stupid narratives, and God, I hope this leads to a sea change in the industry. I vacillate between that, optimism you might call it, sure, and, yeah. and pessimism, or history you might call it, which is that Black Panther is definitely the biggest success for, you know, a black director, black stars, because it's one of the f- biggest successes in Hollywood history, period, exactly, right? Exactly, yeah. But we have been here before. Mm. Hollywood has learned the lesson, like literally throughout its whole history, that people will come out for movies with black people if you make them. You know, in 1967, the year before Martin Luther King Jr. was murdered, you know? Yeah. uh, Sidney Poitier was the highest grossing star in Hollywood. Right. You know? And how many years was it until you could say that of a black actor again? Until Hollywood allowed you to say that of a black actor again? Like... Hollywood learns these things Capitalism learns these things That diversity is actually good for your bottom line And racism is a stronger force than capitalism So I don't want to be preaching Jonathan, the free market will just solve all these problems No, it doesn't And the free market is very racist (laughs) And, And I just I really do hope That everyone sits up and takes notice of Black Panther And says you know, inclusivity is amazing and we should make more movies from more diverse viewpoints because they are, A, really good movies frequently and they lead people to see things they wouldn't have otherwise seen on screen and also they might make us an unholy amount of money. But I don't know. And, you know, one of the things I would point to, and we'll talk about this later, was the reception to A Wrinkle in Time two weeks later and the way people, like, wrote about the disappointing but not disastrous box office results of that movie as though you just you could hear it in all these white critics of like see see movies with minorities can fail i knew it i knew it the status quo is restored and you could just hear how desperate people were to like normalize and be like no black panther was an aberration moonlight was an aberration get out was an like this can't be a trend because something's gonna fail eventually Uh and I just keep that in mind. It's it's cool to be optimistic about the results of Black Panther, but we should also be realistic and and hold Hollywood to that standard and not assume that capitalism will win out over, you know, both casual and very very intentional racism. Yeah. No, it is something that it's it's, you know, the, these problems are not solved by one movie coming out, right? Like yes. it's, it's something that there needs to be a persistence for it to affect meaningful and long-lasting change. And I think it could happen. I think this could absolutely be an inflection point because, you know, one of the real tangible legacies of the Obama years, and I'm not necessarily putting this all on President Obama, I just mean what the culture went through 2009 to 2016, Mm -hmm. was a culture that became much more comfortable with and expecting of diversity in media. You know, and cult- diverse cultural representations more than it had uh, been before, 
And that's a cool thing. And it is, and you know, you get to the end of like those years and you have a year like 2016 where Moonlight won Best Picture, but the story of that year in film was the sheer renaissance going on with, with black creators in cinema getting to tell their stories and telling them extraordinarily well and you know building the wave that would then become Get Out and would then become Black Panther. And you know, 2016 was also the year of uh, Beyonce's Lemonade and things like that. Like just, you know, this is all of a, of a cultural piece and of a moment and Black Panther doesn't exist in a vacuum. And that is the thing that makes me hopeful. I also just, the pessimist species then and it's like, yeah. I know I I know how they fuck this up, you know? It's happened before. It's happened before. It is very easy for capitalist structures to ignore their bottom line in favor of comfort, familiarity, and not lifting a finger, you know? Yeah. Um so yeah. Anyway, it's it's very cool though, and you know, though I guess one thing is I do think Marvel itself will learn from this. Yeah, I agree. like I would be very surprised if Marvel is not hugely reactive to this, uh, especially if also like Captain Marvel does well in a year or two with their first like female-led superhero movie. If they, I would be surprised if they don't become more proactive in developing movies about women and people of color. Um, you know, because they have plenty of properties they can do that with, you yeah. know, uh, not just Black Panther, but like it's more than time for a major Asian superhero or something, yeah. you know, um, someone's got to make a gay superhero way right. past that, yeah. you know, like they should at least we have it in the Flash in the Justice League because Ezra Miller is obviously playing a very gay Flash. Sure. So that's wonderful. They just need to let him be gay. Yeah, that's the really the number one thing I want from the Flash movie. You know, instead of Iris West, it can be Eric West. There you go. To sure. Go for it, I've, WB. I have, I have no issues with that. That movie's never going to get made. No. But, yeah. you know, if it were... I mean, cool I'm not convinced that, like, regardless of the gay Flash movie, I'm not sure the Flash movie is going to get yes. made. No, 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 that's what I meant. Okay, yes. yeah. okay. No, we're definitely not getting a gay Flash movie. It'd be great. We're not. Anyway, all right, uh, enough on that. Interesting, though. I mean, congrats to everyone involved in Black Panther. Yeah, that is that's so awesome. Fucking, yeah. so fucking cool. Anyway, uh, yeah. Okay, next thing I have on here is I saw an article on my favorite Doctor Who News website, right. DoctorWhoNews.net, where... Uh, it's a good name. It is. It's a good name. Um, Chris Eccleston, who played the ninth Doctor. So a little, little, we're going to go off into Doctor Who land for a couple minutes here. That's where we're all... I am always in Doctor Who land, Jonathan. Yes. You're just, I'm just opening the door and letting you in. Um, Christopher Eccleston famously left Doctor Who after one season. You know, he only had the 13 episodes as the Doctor. Uh, honestly, when you compare him to all the other Doctors and their other media, he is by far the shortest serving Doctor. Oh yeah, for sure. Because yeah. of, you know, it's just those 13 stories and he's never done anything else. And we've always sensed frostiness there with him in the show without ever knowing the full story because he has for 13 years now refused to talk about his side of the story. And there was an interesting interview this week in Radio Times, and I'm reading the Doctor Who News like breakdown of it just because they pulled out the relevant quotes. But Radio Times did an interview with him where he talked more openly about it than before. He said that he felt his relationship with his three immediate superiors, one of those being Russell T. Davies, broke down irreparably, he says, during the first block of filming and never recovered. They lost trust in me and I lost trust and belief in them. Uh, again, explicitly saying something I think we'd always thought 
that we knew he had decided to leave early in his tenure because he only did the one season. Um, he says, some of my anger about the situation came from my own insecurity. They employed somebody who was not a natural light comedian. I think if you're setting up a huge series like that, the director has to be impeccable in setting the tone. Billy Piper, who we know was and is brilliant, was very nervous and very inexperienced. So you had that, and then you had me. Very, very inexperienced, possibly the most experienced on it, but out of my comfort zone. Uh, or very experienced, he says. Um, a little bit of ego in there. Um, when I left, I gave my word to then-showrunner Russell T. Davies that I wouldn't do anything to damage the show, but they did things to damage me. I didn't criticize anybody. I didn't issue a statement. Uh, I gave them a hit show, and I left with dignity, and then they put me on a blacklist. I was carrying my own insecurities, as it was something I had never done before, and then I was abandoned, vilified in the tabloid press, and blacklisted. I was told by my agent at the time, the BBC regime is against you. You're going to have to go out of the country. Don't wait for regime change. So I went away to America, and I kept on working, because that's what my parents instilled in me. My dad always said to me, I don't care what you do. Sweeping the floor or whatever you're doing, just do the best job you can. I know it's cliched and northern and all that bollocks, but it applies. So... Um, he says he will never have a working relationship with Russell T. Davies again. Kind of a scorched earth interview. Yeah. Uh, although he is correct in noting that he has not really delivered his side of the story. He has always been pretty polite about it in interviews. Uh, I don't think I've ever heard Russell T. Davies be impolite talking about Chris Eccleston. But definitely other elements from Doctor Who have been more forceful in putting out some side of the story. So he has a right to be frustrated about that. I think... Some of his comments there do come off a little bit patronizing towards, like, Billy Piper. Right. Um, but overall, like, it's interesting. I've always been amazed when you watch his season. None of that really comes across on screen. He yeah. is great. He is energetic. He's a really good doctor. And it all works. It's a really good season of Doctor Who. But, yeah, it is. We've always heard the narrative. They didn't have a good working relationship. This doesn't change anything we knew, really. But it is interesting to finally hear the Ninth Doctor on the record talk about this. And yes, if you were ever hoping for a Ninth Doctor in an anniversary special, it's not happening, guys. Yeah, like, it, it's something that, it makes sense that now, that, like, I feel like it makes sense he's telling this now that we have Stephen Moffat is leaving and we have, like, a full regime change on the show itself. I assume there's probably been a lot of change in the, behind the scenes at the BBC since 2005 when he was playing the character. That, like, it makes sense that, like, now enough time has passed that he feels comfortable talking about some of this stuff. And it is, like, it's more severe behind-the-scenes drama than I had ever sensed. Like, because part of it, what it always just felt to me that, like, Christopher Eccleston was the kind of actor that I don't think he would have been on the show anyways. Like, even if he had a great behind-the-scenes relationship, I don't, he wasn't going to stay there for three full years. Like, it, like, he seems like the kind of actor that very much, like, wants to go do new projects and do, like, weird experimental things, go do a show where you can get his dick out. You know, like, that's the kind of guy he <laughs> That's is. the leftovers yes. is what Sean's referencing, yes. It's, it's our, our our rare running leftovers joke yes. about Christopher Eccleston's penis. Um, but, yeah, like, so it's something that, that I hope that someday he's able to put enough of that behind him to be involved with something, like, with the, like... Even if it's not in the show itself or even doing Big Finish, but, like, being more involved in the Doctor Who fan community, I think that would be nice. People like, love him. I hope he yeah. understands how much people love his take. Yeah, because that's not part of, like, the behind-the-scenes stuff that made him, that pushed him away from the show. Yeah. Like, I hope I hope that someday he can get over that and, and you know, embrace the community the way that the community wants to embrace him, you know? And, and I do feel bad that he at least has this uh, perspective that they kind of blacklisted him. I mean, he is... If you look at his career after Doctor Who, he has not done a lot in England. Like, he has yeah. had to do 
most of his stuff in America. He's had to take some pretty shitty work like Thor the Dark World being the dark elf in that. Right, yeah. You know, things like that. The dark yeah, elf. the dark elf. Go listen to our Doctor Who podcast to get that full joke. That's a running joke from an episode that hasn't been released yet. Exactly. So that's good podcasting. It's it's like Doctor Who itself. It's a little non chronological. Exactly. But yes, um, you know, Chris Eccleston. He did that. I think he's he's found more of a niche. I I imagine the leftovers now that that's over is going to be a springboard for him because I think if you watch that show, you're like, I want this amazing character actor in my stuff because he is amazing in the leftovers. And I'm glad he found that. But, it, you know, it did, frankly, take a really long time for him to find a big, meaty role like that after Doctor Who. Whereas someone like, you know, David Tennant is has had maybe the best post-Doctor Who career of any Doctor. Yeah. Um, Matt Smith is already, you know, has had done two seasons on The Crown and was briefly in Terminator Salvation. There you go. No one, he doesn't hit, even remember that. Hit role. I mean, I don't think, think anybody remembers that that movie exists. Yeah. Peter Capaldi's going to be fine. Like... You know, yeah. J- Jodie Whittaker, whenever she eventually leaves, is going to be, you know, like those sorts of things. Uh, and I don't think it's because of a lack of talent on Chris Eggleston's oh, part. No. So that is too bad. But yeah, I, again, I just, I, I hope he can reconcile at some point, and maybe he has, I don't know, uh, that he brought a whole generation of people into this show. And at the end of the day, that does matter to a lot of us. You know, I am a yeah. Doctor Who fan in no small part. Because I watched the episode Rose, and I fell in love with what he and Billy Piper were doing in that one, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think that goes for a lot of us. And we'd love to, to see him again someday, maybe, you know? Yeah. Chris Chibnall wasn't involved in any of this. Maybe he can get him in the, in the exactly. 60th. Yeah. You know? I think it'd be great. And maybe he can, he can just be in the corner being angry at everyone. Maybe he can do the first Doctor thing if he just appears on a TV, you know? Yeah. I'd be a four up for that. It'd be great. You know, you can have 10 and 11 on the TARDIS looking up at the TV set and there's Chris Eccleston yes. on a weird green screen, you yeah, know? Like clearly reading his lines like held from off yes. the camera, yes. All right, anything else to say about Doctor Who on this specific topic for now? Uh, like like one thing, one small thing that like sort of pursuant to this, I mean, it, it came out around the same time totally regardless of the Chris Eccleston new stuff, but we've known for a while that Stephen Moffat was going to release bits of the 50th, like early versions of the 50th anniversary script that assumed that Chris Eccleston was going to be the ninth doctor instead of creating the war doctor. And I forget what the title of the book is, but it's being put into a book and excerpts of it are readable on different like websites because they've been put out there. And it's interesting to see, like it's mostly the same, like it's very similar dialogue to what the war doctor has, but it's interesting things to see the little touches that were different. Mm-hmm. It's just like, since it came out around the same time as this Christopher Eccleston interview, it's interesting to think about how like how those kinds of things end up shaping the like the whole history of this show. You know, like the the John Hurt's role in the 50th anniversary is such a big part of that episode, and then also I think like the entire Capaldi run is in part informed by that stuff that happens in the 50th anniversary, and it's weird to think about the. The ways that so much of the way that like our you know favorite television programs or anything like that come together is as much due to deliberate creative choices as it is stuff like the crew and Christopher Eccleston on his run had a real bad relationship, so he's not going to come back. So it's like, well, shit. There's no reason why in the story we wouldn't be able to use the Ninth Doctor, but we just can't use him because the actor doesn't want up here. Yes, an interesting thing to think about. All right, any other new stuff you want to go over, Sean? I think I'm good. All right. We have three stuffs to cover. We're going to do movie stuffs. We're going to do TV stuffs. We're going to do video game stuffs. 
Okay, if you stop using, stop pluralizing stuff, it is killing me. Okay, I'm sorry. We're going to do movie stuff, we're going to be doing TV stuff, and we're going to be doing video game stuff. We're not renaming the show the Weekly Stuffs Podcast. If you want to say that at the beginning of every single episode and not flub it, <laughs> no, I be don't. my fucking guest. Alright. That is the most awkward podcast title you could possibly come up with, the Weekly Stuffs Podcast. <laughs> yeah, it's bad. Alright, movie stuff. I want to start with... You know, Black Panther is a great movie, and I yeah. love it, and I think it probably is the best movie I've seen so far this year, but the movie that has won my heart so far this year, the movie that I love most that I have seen this year, is A Wrinkle in Time by Ava DuVernay. Um, Disney movie, but transcends that, just the same way I think Black Panther transcends being a Marvel movie. Or a Disney movie. A Disney movie. They're all Disney movies. All yes. movies are Disney movies. Exactly. You know how now, like, Refrigerator used to be a brand, but we just call all refrigerators refrigerators? Yeah, like Band-Aid or Kleenex. I think in a hundred years, like our grandchildren, they'll be calling movies Disney's. Yes. That's what it'll be called. They're not films, they're Disney's. Or they're Mickey's or something. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. They're disses. They're disses. Yeah. Go see the diss. All right. Uh, no. A Wrinkle in Time... Man, it. I have not been depressed by the rec- critical reaction to a movie so much in my life as the just sheer dismissal of A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. Uh, and that's not all critics. There are, there's a lot of good, insightful commentary on this movie, including by people who didn't like it in some cases, and that's totally fine. If it doesn't resonate with you, whatever. But I, I think truly great children's movies are very few and far between. In the history of cinema. Yeah. You know, like truly great ones that I think will resonate with multiple generations of children, have something to say, and are on top of that just significant works of film art for any age and can be studied that way. And I truly do think A Wrinkle in Time is one of those movies. It, uh, you know, it's based on the famous Madeline Langle book. Um, I read that as a kid. It's one of those things where I cannot really recall specific details of it all that well. But, like, the tone of it and just the general weirdness of it has always stuck with me. And I think it's stuck with, you know, generations of women particularly even more. Because, you know, it was notable when it came out in the 60s for being a young, well, what we would call now a young adult novel with a female protagonist. Um, obviously that's not rare anymore, but it meant a lot to people throughout the years. It's, it's message of sort of, you know, quiet empowerment is such an interesting element of it. And what I think is interesting about this movie is that it's, it doesn't feel like a strict adaptation of the book. What it feels like is a reaction to the book, an interpretation to the book. It feels like Ava DuVernay, uh, and her screenwriters and everyone involved having a very personal reaction to what this book is and putting that personal reaction on the screen. And that's what's interesting. The best adaptations are that. They're not just, how do we take this book and workmanlike turn it into the movie equivalent? That never is that interesting. The best adaptations of anything, be it history or a play or a book or a video game, still hasn't happened in live-action Hollywood cinema. Yeah. But like uh, when we talked about the Persona 3 movies, for instance, they're this way. It's an interpretation of the work. It's a reaction to the work. And that's what I feel like this movie is. It is visually sumptuous. It, like a lot of Disney's recent live-action movies, it definitely leans into the CGI very heavily, and there are some things that, like, in my heart of hearts, I would love to see, like, there's a dragon at one point. That'd be great. It's like a stop-motion model. But, you know, Hollywood doesn't do that anymore, so we can pull that off the table. But it uses CGI to create worlds that, like, look unreal. It's not trying to create a clear sense of photorealism in its CGI or anything, or a really bland sense of, you know, technicolor magic in the way Sam Raimi's Oz the Great and Powerful did, which is just visually boring, or the dullness of, like, the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland movies. 
This like has such great use of color and imagination. It is constantly putting theme into the aesthetics. Uh, sometimes it's obvious, like there's this place they go with a character played by Zach Galifianakis, who is all about sort of finding, helping people find balance within themselves. And so they're all, his whole place is, is constructed as this series of rocks on these like little balance beams. And so as you're standing on them, you're like trying to balance yourself. And they never have to call attention to that. There's just smart aesthetic storytelling going on there. Uh, beyond that, I think it is just passionately told. It is paced well. It has such a great cast. I mean, obviously, Oprah Winfrey as a literal, like, god figure, yeah. that's, a, that's a slam dunk. You know, you really can't go wrong with that. But it's amazing how not wrong they went with it. Like, uh -huh. you've all seen the picture, the snapshot of her in the movie with, like, her arms outstretched in that amazing costume. And... It's just awesome. She is just an amazing character. I love her. I love Mindy Kaling as um, with one of the other misses who only speaks in like quotes of famous philosophers. Of course, they've also updated it now for pop culture figures sometimes, which is very funny. Uh, and then Reese Witherspoon is one of my favorite parts of the movie because she is she's Miss Who, I think, and she's basically playing Glinda the Good Witch if she was on Peyote oh. is how I interpreted it, and it's awesome. Reese Witherspoon. Uh, you know, she's played a lot of dramatic roles recently. She just gets to cut loose in a kid's movie like this. I enjoyed that. It's fun. Yeah, like I said, you got Zach Galifianakis in there. He's he's fun. Um, Chris Pine plays the dad everyone wants to have, which is cool. Chris, Chris Pine has come a long way since Star Trek. He was yeah. great in Star Trek. Uh -huh. I didn't know he was as good as an actor as he is, though. Like, between this and Wonder Woman and Hell, in High, or Hell or High Water, yeah. there's a maturity to him that is startling. He is a He's a great actor. Um, so he's great in this. And then the young actors they found, Storm Reed in particular, who plays Meg in the movie, is just a great find. And she's a great find because she feels like a real kid. And she feels like a kid, a real kid who has, you know, very real, like non-exaggerated but also not downplayed self-esteem issues in the way a lot of little kids do of like just not feeling like they're good enough for the world and that being what the movie is it's not really a movie with very high stakes what it really is is this very internalized journey for a little girl being told that she is good enough to do big things and i've seen a lot of people scoff at that without even i think realizing that that's what they're scoffing at because when you say the movie is low stakes or it's low energy, or it doesn't feel like there's a there's a ton going on to the narrative, or that it's it's like the tone is very like it's too kiddie or something like. But that's what the movie is. It's about the mind of a child going through this process of self discovery, where it's not about her picking up a sword and getting superpowers and slaying the dragon. It's about her being confident enough in her own abilities and emotions to make an impact on her family. And I found that tremendously powerful because I cannot point to many movies that have come out in my life, especially in America, that I think deal with themes that intimate and direct, especially in a children's film. You know, it feels much more of the um, model you'd get in like a Hayao Miyazaki movie or something, you know. Um, and very few American directors are as good at dealing with kids' issues as he is, you know. So you don't get that kind of thing a lot. But I very much enjoyed the movie for all those reasons. As I said, it's it's it truly, I found it visually jaw-dropping. Uh, and it's fun, and I think it's got the right sense of tone, and just, it's weird. That's the other thing, it's just out there. Like, one of the things I kind of jokingly said after I saw it, is it's kind of like if David Lynch very sincerely decided to make a children's movie. 
It does kind of have that quality where David Lynch, we've talked about this before. The first thing a lot of people think of when they think of David Lynch is the weirdness. I think of the earnestness. Yeah. The sheer earnestness to his movies. And that's what, A Wrinkle in Time is nothing if not a very, very earnest movie. And I hate that earnest is a word that critics use as a negative for movies. That's the dumbest criticism you can level at a movie. Because what you usually mean when you're saying that is you think a movie is disingenuous, which is the antonym of earnest. This movie is earnest. It believes what it says. And it has this weird thing where it is it is associative storytelling. It, the plot cannot really be taken literally. It's it's really interesting. And also, as people have pointed out, it comes from and this is where it's it's not David Lynch-esque, of course, a feminine perspective and a black perspective and a black feminine perspective, all of which are things you don't get a lot of in hundred million dollar Disney movies. Right. You know? And it's cool that Disney has done two of those in one month in Black Panther and a Wrinkle in Time. But it's just a start, and I think that's another thing that I think there was a discomfort within the conversation is that it does have a more feminized view of a blockbuster sort of image. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into what that necessarily means. There's a lot of good writing by women who know this means better than I do out there, and I would direct you towards it. Um, But I found it to be a very powerful movie, and I have also seen the reactions to it. You know, this movie's meant a lot to people who have loved it. And I would just, if you were scared off by like the 40% on Rotten Tomatoes or something, go see this movie. You'll be happy you saw it in a theater. Even if you don't like it, it is so interesting. I think it deserves to be seen and discussed and talked about. And I, I really do love it. And one other thing. If you, like me, loved the costumes in Black Panther. Okay, yeah. you got to see the costumes in A Wrinkle in Time. Yeah. Sean, I don't think I can... I don't know if this is politically correct to say. I don't think I can go back to costumes by white people anymore. <laughs> I'm like, just between Black Panther and A Wrinkle in Time. Like, there's just... You know what I'm talking about, though, right? Sure, yes. Like, these two movies. You just look at, like, Black Panther. You think, there's there can't be any cooler costumes on Earth than that movie. And then you see what Oprah is wearing in A Wrinkle in Time. Or what crazy peyotied out Glinda the Good Witch Reese Witherspoon is wearing in this movie. And you're like, God damn... Costumes in white, like, directed movies are fucking boring. This is so cool. And that's why diversity matters. In one small, surface-level way. Okay. That is why diversity matters. All right? I think you've solved racism. I think that's what's going on here, Jonathan. I'm proud of you. All right. Uh, I haven't. Again, I don't know if that was politically correct to say, but it really did come from the heart. All right? Anyway, uh... Anything else we should say on that? You didn't see it. I so. haven't seen it, no. You didn't see Tomb Raider either? No. Did not see Tomb Raider? No. Like, I would have much... If, if I was going to see one of those two movies, I would have seen Wrinkle of Time. Okay, yeah. Because uh, Wrinkle of Time, like you said, like, the, the critical reception to it was really fascinating to me. Like, like yeah, because yeah. there were some people that, like, love it, like you, and then there are some people that are, like, muted on it in a way that makes you raise your eyebrows and be like, I don't fully think you're the way you're muted on this movie is like legitimate and then there's some people that just didn't like it is like i don't think they're being racist and not liking it but there's some people that's like the way you're talking about this movie is kind of fucked up dude it was yes yeah, yeah. Uh, it was some of those there was some of that uh tomb raider though uh i don't i don't i don't know what to say about video game movies anymore in hollywood because there is a brick wall standing in front of hollywood on video game movies and for over 20 years, past the boundaries of my lifetime. Okay, the Super Mario Brothers movie is 1993. So, one year into my lifetime to yes, now. Yes, one, one disastrous year into our collective lifetime. <laughs> they have had that brick wall in front of them. 
Uh-huh. And every time they pick up the ball and they run at the brick wall and they hit it and they crack their skull and they have to go to the hospital for a couple weeks. Uh-huh. And then they get out of the hospital and they're like, you know what? I'm going to try it again. And the first time they try it again running at the brick wall the exact same way, you think, okay, it's only been one time. You probably should have learned after that first skull cracking, but I'll give you this one. But then throughout the 90s, they run at that brick wall. And throughout the 2000s, they run at that brick wall. And they just hit it the same fucking way the same, every time. And it's on the level of how the movie is made, the people they choose to make it, the way they distribute the movie, the way they market the movie. It's the same brick wall every time. And what's so frustrating about Tomb Raider is that it's stealthy. It's a Trojan horse on this. Because for about an hour of Tomb Raider, I thought, this isn't great. But I think they've taken a left path around the brick wall, and okay. they're trying. They're like, maybe they got this right. Because Alicia Vikander is fantastic. She is the perfect Lara Croft. She looks the part. She acts the part. She's got this really interesting energy that feels very true to who Lara Croft is, but also feels distinct from other, like, you know, movie heroes or heroines we've had in recent years. So that's cool. And I like that they kind of start with her in London, and you see some, like, street-level stuff with her, and how they set up the motivations around her father is pretty well done. And once you get to the island, there's actually some genuinely cool action scenes. Like, there's a version of what happens to her in the first game where she's falling down the river, and then this thing with a plane happens and the thing with the plane is a direct ripoff of the beginning of Uncharted 2 but ignoring that for a second it's pretty cool on film it comes together I was liking that and then the movie hits a point in the story where it I like it's rare that a movie has made a plot choice that just lost me so hard because I was pretty much digging this movie something happens in the plot and I wanted to leave I just I knew I wasn't going to enjoy the movie from that point out The movie isn't good from that point out. The last act of this movie is boring as sin. It is the most boring third act I've seen to a movie in years. And it just, it kind of falls apart. And you realize the foundations were always pretty crumbly. And in the end, they were running at the brick wall the same way. They just zigged and zagged a little bit along the way more. And let me explain what that is. Yeah, I'm, I want to hear what the plot point is. All right. I'm not going to fucking see this no. movie. So I'm going to spoil Tomb Raider from here on out. Oh, no. So, uh, as with, like, all Tomb Raider media, which I honestly didn't really realize this until this movie came out, and I learned that this is also the plot of the Angelina Jolie movie, Mm -hmm. Uh, I was reminded that this is in the 2013 Tomb Raider game, because I completely forgot it, uh, and that this was in the original games as well, that a lot of it is about her relationship with her father, Sir Richard Croft. Right, yes. Played here by McNulty from The Wire, Dominic West. Okay. Um, I remembered his name, but I started by calling him McNulty from The Wire. But yes, Dominic West plays her father, Lord Richard Croft, and it starts kind of similar story to the 2013 game, where he is dead, he's disappeared, he left behind a bunch of information. Um, in the games, Lara is also an archaeologist and is very educated and learned and kind of a genius at all this stuff, right? Yes. Uh, In the games, they completely ignore all of that, and we'll get to it, because it's weird. They have a Tomb Raider who has literally no knowledge about archaeology. That's bizarre. In the movie? Yes. Okay. That's a bizarre choice. We'll get to that later, though. Because at the beginning, you don't think it's such a problem, because you don't realize that's the choice they've made until you get to the island, and she doesn't know anything. And that's odd. That's very odd. Before you go any further, are they Russian people on the island? Is it, is it no. weird Russian people? It's Chinese people. She huh. gets there from Hong Kong. They still call it Yamatai and say it's off the coast of Japan. I and is don't... it still about like Himiko and all that yes. stuff? But this is a Chinese co-production, so it's all Chinese people, and she leaves from Hong Kong, even though maybe my geography isn't great. I don't think the coast of Japan and Hong Kong are that close. No. 
So and yeah. and it's specific. It's not that it's just necessarily Chinese actors. No, like no, no, they're no. supposed to be Chinese people in the movie. Yes. Okay. It makes no sense whatsoever. The movie has made like three times what it's made in America in China. So it worked for the studio. It's okay. Been a su- it's been a success in China. It's the only place that's been a success. I don't know. The Chinese like literally didn't. No one went to see the Last Jedi. They turned out in droves for Tomb Raider. Very strange. Huh. You should look this up. What the box office is in China for Tomb Raider? Because okay. it, it kind of blew me away. I think that it might have broken a hundred million or something. But like, yeah. Um, what was I saying? Okay, so Sir Richard Croft is dead. He has left behind the mystery about Yamatai. Lara. In this movie, they give her an interesting motivation where she doesn't want to accept her father is dead. She has just she's missing, and she will not sign the papers confirming he is dead. So she does not have his fortune. And at the beginning of this movie, she's like working for a courier service because she doesn't have any money. I I actually think that's a pretty cool setup for Lara Croft. Like, that's an interesting way to do it. Sure. But they also, because of that, allied her being an archaeologist, which is weird, and we'll get into that. But she thinks her father's dead. She decides to go to Yamatai because something is happening there, and she wants to figure it out and, like, fulfill her father's wishes. And it's all interesting, and it's the story you would expect to see of Lara Croft, like, finding herself on this first adventure. And they're doing a pretty good job at that because you have... Her getting to the island, she makes this friend in Hong Kong who takes her there, and I liked that character, and then he disappears for most of the movie, which is sad because he was the only other cool person in the movie, and then she gets to the island, there's a big action sequence, the Uncharted 2 sequence with the plane, and then there's a scene where she has to kill a person for the first time, very much inspired by the 2013 game, and I'm loving it, I'm like... They've got, they've had some cool puzzles she's had to solve. You know, you're going to the island. You've had the big, like, uncharted action sequence. This is my jam. Alicia Vikander is great. I love it. They're like, she's coming into her own as a character. And as soon as she starts coming into her own as a character, you know what happens, Sean? Her dad's alive and he's on the island. What? And he's been there the whole time. And uh, they get back together. And from that point on, the movie is more about the father than it's about her. And they just decide, fuck it. It's really hard to tell stories about girls. So we're going to tell a story about Mr. Uh, Sir, Sir Croft. That's the point where the movie lost me. Because literally, she kills the dude. It's this big, defining moment in Lara Croft's life. She's, she's taken her first life. She's done her first piece of murder. And she looks over and her father is standing there with a long beard. And it's just like... No, we're bored with the story we're telling. Fuck it, we're telling a different story. And the movie just loses me. It becomes all about her relationship with her dad and her daddy issues. And then he's the guy who knows about Himiko and the tomb. So she doesn't need the knowledge that they didn't even bother to give her. So when it becomes the very typical thing where the villain, played here by Walton Goggins, um, kidnaps them and then he makes them go into the tomb with them. And the last act is them going into Himiko's tomb like the end of every Tomb Raider or Uncharted game, right? Right. It's super boring because there's, like, different traps and stuff, but Lara Croft has no knowledge of archaeology or history, so she's just running around doing action stuff, so they can't do any fun puzzles, and fun puzzles are the best part of these fucking things. Yeah. Like, you know, imagine Indiana Jones of the Last Crusade where Indy goes in and he hasn't done his research, and he's just guessing everything. Yeah. That's what the end of Tomb Raider is. It's boring as sin. The dad gets killed off at the end, so, you know, make it convenient. She doesn't have to haul him back. Um... They give a big middle finger to the audience of the games when you get to Himiko's tomb. 
And Himiko wasn't a magical goddess. She just had a weird disease that gets passed on if you open the tomb. And that's what's dangerous about Himiko. Don't worry, guys. No magic in our Hollywood movie. It's just science. That is one of the mini brick walls these movies 100% of the time hit. It's like they're still stuck in early 2000s comic book movies of like, yes. we can't, it has to be leather costumes and everything has to be founded in like some fucking scientific bullshit. Yes. We can't have magic. We can't have color. We can't have anything fun. No. So all of that happens. Like I said, that last act is so boring and it's where you realize, right. It's stupid to have a Lara Croft who knows nothing about archaeology or history because then it, when it comes for her, time for her to, I don't know, raid the tomb, she has nothing to do. It's so weird. And they just waste Alicia Vikander. And if that wasn't bad enough, you know how the movie ends, Sean? With a 10-minute prolonged sequence setting up a series of sequels that will never happen because other than the sovereign nation of China, no one has watched this movie. And it's so labored. It's all about the evil organization syphilis or whatever it's fucking called. <laughs> I don't know. Does it matter? It doesn't matter. It's actually it's gonorrhea, please. Gonorrhea, yes. Whatever the evil organization is called. And Lara's like, you know what? I'm gonna have to go. And she even has a map of like, here are all the places syphilis has, whatever it is, has been. <laughs> this is and all she, the places that syphilis has struck. Has yeah. struck. And she's like, I'm gonna go to all these places. And they might as well just say, Tomb Raider 2 coming 2020 over here. Tomb Raider 3 coming 2021 over Shadow here. Shadow of the Shadow of the Tomb Raider, the yes. movie version. Yeah, it's, uh, and then they even do a mid credit scene, which, by the way, the mid credit scene was in all the trailers. Is that the scene with Nick Frost and uh-huh. she has the guns? Yep. I fucking, when we talked about that trailer, I was like, that is the last, like, fucking thing that that movie shows is this scene, because there is nowhere else in the movie you could possibly put this fucking scene. Yes, Nick Frost is in another scene, but the, that scene, not, but the scene he's in is not the ones in the trailers. The thing in the trailers is literally the last images of the movie. It's so good. It's so good that they just pulled that. Up. So let's recap. What do they pass? up one they don't understand the main character they don't really try to understand the main character they made a tomb raider movie where the heroine has no interest in tombs or in raiding them so that was interesting you know they did that uh they have to turn it all into a daddy issue oriented thing there's a wall that we've hit before yeah um and go so far as to resurrect the supposedly dead father to yes. like make him even more ever present in the story and take away from Lara's what story. Be, yeah, Lara's yep. story. We have the sequel bait ending. This is the thing that like literally every Hollywood video game movie does this. There has never been a sequel to a Hollywood video game movie except the first Tomb Raider with Angelina Jolie. And Mortal Kombat with the the scintillating okay. Mortal Kombat Annihilation. Sure. It's not a movie that people should see. No. Um, but, like, I'm going back to 1993. Super Mario Bros. did this. They ended with their fucking sequel hook. <laughs> yes, they did. We st- it's been 30 years, Sean. <laughs> we still haven't learned. Don't end with a sequel hook to a movie that... And here's the next part. They dumped Tomb Raider in March, right on the heels of all these other successful uh-huh. movies. They marketed it pretty poorly. It got bad reviews because it wasn't that good. They sold it off to the lowest fucking bidder for all the behind-the-scenes stuff because I guarantee you, you will not recognize a single name among the directors or the writers. The costume designer is Colleen Atwood. She's great. But, like, other than that, you're not going to recognize anyone's name on this thing because it's just... They never get good enough people to make these movies. Every time they take a video game property, they look at it and they decide, I don't actually like what this is, so we're going to make something else out of it. 
Then they get people who are not talented to make the movie. Sometimes they put good people in front of the camera, like Alicia Vikander, but that's not really enough. Yeah. And they put a dumb sequel hook on it, they dump it in a time when it's going to fail, they hit the brick wall, they split their fucking head open, they fall over, they get up again, and they do it again. And you know why I know this? Because Prince of Persia was 2010, <laughs> and fucking Assassin's Creed was 2016, and Tomb Raider was 2018, and they're all the same, and they never learn, and they're going to do it again. Sony is still trying to make an Uncharted movie. We're yeah. going to get that. It's going to be the exact same kind of bad. This is the most fucking bankrupt genre in the history of Hollywood, and I don't think it will ever work as long as the industry is the way it is. Yes. Ever. I, I basically agree with that assertion. That it, but it's like the thing that's absurd about it is that there is nothing... There's no reason for it to be like that. Yes. There's not, it's not like... There's, because I see some people have, have the reaction that, well, it's because it's trying to adapt a video game. And no. like video games are bad, like bad, bad stories or something. It's like, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, like, even if the video game does have a bad... Like, I don't think Tomb Raider has this amazing fucking story... There's nothing that, like, is preventing you from making a good Tomb Raider movie, you know? Just in the way that, like, there's nothing that, you know, like, an Indiana Jones movie is a fucking Tomb Raider movie. Like, they're not, like, all you have to do is have a woman be Indiana Jones, and you have literally just made a Tomb Raider movie. Tomb Raider is the easiest tee-up of a video game franchise uh, for a movie's Ever. It could, literally could not be easier. Yeah. Because it, what Tomb Raider comes from is a genre of movies and serials dating back to the silent era. Yeah. There is so much cinematic precedent for getting this right. And they fuck it up every single time. Here's, here's, what I've, here's my new line on this. The day we get a halfway decent video game adaptation is the day when you look at the director's name and you recognize who they are. Sure. That is the day that will happen. It has never happened... Maybe it will one day. If it ever does, that's when we might get a good one. Hasn't happened yet. We're not getting it. Yes. So I have brought up the uh, the a couple of things I want to do. But first, okay. you, you mentioned the box office stuff. Um, the movie has made in China $41 million, which is about 80% of its total gross. <laughs> so, yes. Uh it made the vast majority of its money in the Chinese market. It's pretty it. fucking ridiculous. Uh -huh. The other thing I have brought up is I want to read to you, Jonathan, on Wikipedia, the list of theatrical international live-action films based on video games. Okay, this so, is great. So this list of movies is compiled by Wikipedia, so if there's anything missing, it's not my fault. Um, and I, is, I'm guessing this is maybe going to prove a point I was making earlier. Probably, more or less. Um, and I do want to note that they have, for most of these movies, both the Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic totals. <laughs> and I don't want to like say that like that should, should like be like the end-all, be-all on the quality of the films. But there is... But um, a trend is a trend. Yes, there is only... For, for Metacritic, there are only two movies that are 50 or above. And the highest Metacritic rating is a 58, which is for Mortal Kombat. And... <laughs> Rotten Tomatoes, I think Mortal Kombat... No, Tomb Raider has the highest Rotten Tomatoes right now at 50%. That's probably because it's so recent. And then the other highest is Mortal Kombat, which has a 34%. Um, so now I'm going to read the titles of all of these movies. Super Mario Brothers, Double Dragon. They made a Double Dragon movie. Right. That was, that was one year. That was 1994. Uh, Street Fighter, also 1994. Mortal Kombat, 95 the sequel to Mortal Kombat, Mortal Kombat Annihilation, which has a, let me see, 3% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is pretty fucking bad. Uh, Wing Commander, 99, so they, they took a little break there. Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, which is the full title of the Angelina Jolie movie in 2001. Resident Evil, 
And so it's like, it's very easy to forget that those Resident Evil movies are technically based on the video games, even though the only one that has anything to fucking do like the video games is that first one. And that is at least a financial success. They did make six of those. That's the only time that's worked. Yes. And it, it, but like, they have nothing spite, to do with the games. And it has nothing to do with the quality of those movies. I guess like I've seen most of that first Resident Evil movie and it's okay-ish at best. But yeah. So yeah. Resident Evil 1. Then they made Lara Croft, Tomb Raider, The Cradle of Life, uh, House of the Dead. I think that's when we're starting to get to Uvi Bull territory. Uh, Resident Evil Apocalypse, Alone in the Dark. That's Uvi Bull. Doom. Unless we forget the Doom movie. Probably the best of all of them. Yeah. Blood Rain, uh, Uwe Boll again. Silent Hill, uh, which I think some people kind of will defend that Silent Hill movie. I They're almost sure. certainly wrong. Yeah. Uh, DOA, Dead or Alive. Nope. Postal. Nope. Resident Evil Extinction, so we're still making Resident Evil movies. Hitman, which is the first Hitman movie. That is the most boring action movie I've Hitman. ever seen. In the Name of the King, A Dungeon Siege Tale. That's another Uwe Boll. Far Cry. They made a Far Cry movie. That was also Uwe Boll. Both of those movies came out in 2008. <laughs> wow. I didn't know that. I did not know about Far Cry. Uwe Boll is a different thing. We, you know, Yeah, that's yes. fair enough. But then they made that Max Payne movie, right. which I had totally forgotten about to look at this list. Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li. Some people like that one. No. It was like direct I mean, video, though. Some people like that one, but No. Uh, Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time. That movie was okay and nothing more. Yeah, that that movie had Jake Gyllenhaal in it. And yes. Ben, was Ben Kingsley in that? Ben Kingsley was the villain. They super white cast it and then put oh, him in yeah. blackface. Yes. Basically, brownface. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they made a Tekken movie, technically. Uh, Resident Evil Afterlife. Resident Evil Retribution. So here you see that like the, the video game movies were so sparse that there are two Resident Evil movies in a row and they were made two years apart. Silent Hill Revelation... Need for Speed in 2014. With Aaron Paul, With right. Aaron Paul, because he came out on the EA stage at E3 and did his fucking little actor bow. And feel like, I'm so... I'm like the Hollywood actor that's here. It's like, I fucking get video games. And I'm in your Need for Speed movie. And nobody remembered that movie since. <laughs> uh, Hitman Agent 47, which made $82 million. They, the Warcraft movie. Right. The Warcraft movie, which I th- everyone has already forgotten happened. Um, the the noose tightening around our neck, known as the Assassin's Creed movie, that came next. Resident Evil: The Final Chapter. Uh, you know, maybe that will actually be the last one they made. Um, then Tomb Raider. Then later this year, in a couple of weeks, we're getting the Rampage movie with The Rock. Which that um, one's separate enough that like, that might be okay. That might be okay. That might be okay. And then this is for like the the movies that are sort of dated, but are obviously like in the future. Dynasty Warriors. They have said they're going to make a Dynasty Warriors movie. No, they're not. Which is just I don't even know what that fucking means. But here's the thing. Here's the thing, Sean. Yeah. Dynasty. That would be such an easy tee up. Get a Chinese director. Get a Chinese cast. I think that's it. what their plan is. It's, it's okay. Be that would be a that if you did that well, that could be a huge international hit. They're not going to do that. They're going to fuck it up. But they could. Also, I posit this. A Dynasty Warriors movie is literally just a Romance of the Three Kingdoms movie. Like, that's all right. it is. Like, there's no... Like, I've seen several Dynasty Warriors movies. But that's They're just I'm... over-the-top action fucking Romance of the Three yes. Kingdoms movies. Anyway, what else? Uh, and then the Detective Pikachu movie, that's never happening. I refuse. I it's refuse already... That's already filming, Sean. No. They're going to film it and then delete it all. And then it's just a big prank. Then the Sonic the Hedgehog movie that's supposed to come out. That's 15, definitely never happening. 
It's got it's got a day. It has a day. On Does it have a director? Um, I will I will right click on this and come back to it because then there's also Uncharted and Sleeping Dogs, which are both TBA on the day. Those are like, never happening. Those are never happening. Sleeping Dogs is an Uncharted. I think will eventually like once Uncharted has been done as a series for. 20 I mean, years. I guess they did make a Tomb Raider movie, so maybe they will do. Yeah, but I don't. Sean. Look at the list. This so proves my point. Uh-huh. This is a genre stretching back 30 fucking years. Yep. And it, look at how similar all these movies are, how yep. similar their grosses are, how similar their critical reception is, how similar they all have the same problems. And over and over again, they do the same thing. They don't correct. This is why, again, I'm not super optimistic about Black Panther changing the future of Hollywood. Right. Hollywood is Terrible at learning lessons, and this is like ground zero for yeah, that. Yeah, because especially if you cut out all the Uwe Bull movies, like you end up with basically like that Super Mario Brothers, like Mortal Kombat, Tomb Raider, Resident Evil, Doom, Street uh, Fighter, yeah, Street Fighter, Hitman, Max Payne, Prince of Persia. Uh, obviously, all the Resident Evil movies are in there. Need for Speed. Uh, Assassin's Creed, Tomb Raider, like those are and all could, the same fucking movie. In my you head. could you could Mad Lib review those. Just take out the name of the director, the setting, the star, and the the the, the crux of the review would be the same for virtually every single one of those. And in twenty five years, Hollywood hasn't learned. They're never going to figure it out. I agree. I, I have the breaking news here. Apparently. Uh, someone named Jeff Fowler is going to be potentially the director of the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, who I think he works at that Blur studio that makes a lot of really good uh, video game trailers. That could, it's, it's not going to be. I, there's just no hope. There's no hope. This, Illumination is making a Mario movie. I'm going to fucking slip my wrist in the theater. It's going to be horrible. All but right. Before we move on, the last thing that needs to be said, because this was the thing that was echoing deep in my heart on Twitter when Tomb Raider came out and Tomb Raider was bad, was everybody just saying that all video game movies are bad. And I was like, no, all Hollywood video game movies yes. are bad. And if you want proof of that, right now on Netflix, you can watch Persona 3, the movie's number two, Midsummer Night's Dream, which has been on Netflix for four fucking years. Without ever Without getting ever up. putting up the three other movies. It is the second movie, and you can still watch it on Netflix. It's still there. And they've never put any of the other movies up for one fucking second. This one has been up for four years. I mean, seriously, though, I did just rewatch all those with my brother, who had not seen them yet. And they are some of just straight up the best animated movies I have ever seen. Yeah. Um, they, they transcend all genre, all style. They are amazing. And yes, they do prove that this is entirely a Hollywood-constructed problem. Yes, if you give people who give a shit and like give them the resources to make their movie, they will make the fucking movie and it, it could very well be very good. Yes. But that will never happen in Hollywood. All right. TV stuff, Sean? Let's talk about TV stuff. We don't talk about TV stuff that much because I don't watch so many TV shows. Uh, I've been talking for a while. How was the new season of The X-Files? It was really fucking good. Um, yeah, I've been watching these. Uh, the new, uh, It's basically season 11 slash like season 2 of the new X-Files, however the fuck you want to think about it. But I have been watching them week to week, but I didn't really want to do like a like synopsis of each episode since you haven't been watching it. So like, I was waiting for the season to be done. Uh, they finished the season. It was 10 episodes long, and they finished it a couple of days ago from the recording of this podcast because they were coming up on Wednesdays. And it is really solid. Um, it's a lot better than the last one they did, season 10, which had a couple of good episodes and one really good episode with uh, Mulder and Scully meet the Monster, but it was generally like sort of rocky. This one, with the exception of the first and last episode... That's what I've heard from everyone. ...which are 
unbelievably bad. Uh, My Struggle 3 and My Struggle 4, because all the... Basically, if you watch the new X-Files seasons and you skip every episode titled My Struggle, which are the like openings and the finales of each of the se- of the two seasons they like all those episodes are detailing like the main like you know capital P plot that is going on which is something that the X-Files has not been good at doing since maybe season 5 kind of so, like that season 5 season 6 when they made the first movie that was the last time it was good it's been bad in the X-Files since then it and it has and it is the one of those things about this season that like kind of like my thesis statement for this season feels like they kind of somehow never stopped making the X-Files and it was as good as it's ever been because the vast majority of the episodes, like episode two is kind of rough, but episodes three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine are all either good or there's a couple of really great episodes in there. So it's like, it's a really solid batting average. It's just, you have to, or I would say, honestly, just skip the, the My Circle episodes because they're not important because it's, all the rest of them are totally self-contained. It's almost like if you name a series of episodes after the German translation of Mein Kampf, you might be, like, too pretentious for your own good. Yeah, and that's basically what it feels like. And it feels like, it feels, it, like, like, you know, my thesis was, it's somehow this feels like, you know, everybody, all the writers, the directors, well, all the writers except Chris Carter with those two episodes. I mean, he made one other episode plus one, which is really good, because when he, when you let him, or he lets himself write a Monster of the Week episode, he can write really good one of those. He's always been able to write good those. But, but, you know, everyone else making the X-Files, including, like, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson are fucking at the top of their game, as always, are just, like, right there lockstep with the best of the X-Files that it ever had. But then, like, the parts where the X-Files were bad and, like, got worse over time have continued to get worse over time for the extent of, like, the ten-plus years since the cancellation of the original X-Files to then be at the point of being so utterly, mystifyingly incomprehensible... Uh, that that one, you know, spoilers for the end of season ten of the X Files, the slash the beginning of season eleven of the X Files. They made the cliffhanger of season ten, which I still love the balls of making the fucking end of your like miracle revived season of the X Files have a fucking massive cliffhanger on it. But they resolved that cliffhanger by making it all a dream. Like literally, it was a vision that Scully had um, connected to the her and Mulder's son uh, William. And like his alien powers and so it's like oh all that that crazy shit that happened at the end of the last season it's all a dream and is not evolved or like 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 addressed or or resolved or anything over the course of this season because basically i guess this season means that none of that stuff ever happens because there's a vision of the future that i don't think can occur anymore i don't know uh my struggle for which is the finale is just utter horseshit like it is so bad and i really hope like one, I really hope that they make another season because uh, so much of the season was amazing. I hope that if or when they do, uh, that they either don't do big capital P plot episodes or start totally fresh and cut all that baggage out. Don't bring back the cigarette smoking man. Don't fucking bring back Annabeth Gish from like the season nine of the X Files when she kind of half replaced Mulder slash Scully when they were trying to switch to a new cast and it didn't really work out. Even though it was okay, but the, the show got canceled. Don't bring that character back. Nobody fucking remembers that character. I can't even remember what her name was. I just remember the actress's name. It's Reyes. Yes, you're right. The last name. Why is do Reyes. I know? I haven't seen the show. Why do I know that? Yes, I just her did. last name is Reyes. I did go and read the plot for this finale because the come down was amazing on Twitter. It's after like, so crazy because people were so into this season, yeah. and then that finale aired, and people were like, "What the fuck was that?" And so I had to go read the plot so not yeah, summary. It's it's 
just utter horseshit, but it doesn't in any way affect what to me was a just phenomenal season of the X-Files that that uh, has its best episode is the Darren Morgan episode, because the Darren Morgan episode is always the best episode. The Lost Art of Forehead Sweat, which is just a great title for anything, but it's a just utterly hilarious episode that in particular has such a good grasp on how to like play with the Mulder and Scully characters uh, like after all this time and being in this really modern setting. And it's all about memory and belief and how like your beliefs are associated with your memories. The premise of that episode is that this weird like bald dude pops up that's like Mulder Scully, I'm I'm I was with you, like I'm I was an X Files agent with you guys, but they have erased your memory and you've forgotten me. Like to the point that they like forced gump him into old episodes <laughs> of the X Files and it's fucking amazing. They put him into the title of like the theme song stuff and he like comes through the door with them when they have the, the flashlights and everything in the theme song sequence. It's it's a great episode. It's all about like the Mandela effect and how like your perception of the past changes and all that stuff. It's really brilliant. Brilliant. It's really funny, but it also has, and this is something that's shared a lot about a lot of these episodes, is it does kind of feel like it has its fingers on the pulse in a way that season 10 did not about like where to fit Mulder and like the core premise of the X-Files about belief in like the supernatural and sort of like paranoia and all that stuff in 20, now 2018, when the last season was like, you know, right on the verge of the Trump stuff happening, but like it goes kind of in this uncomfortable place. But over the course of uh, The Lost Art of Forehead Sweat, the Mulder encounters this character called Dr. They, who is supposedly the man scientist who is doing all this memory stuff. And he has a couple of lines in this just brilliant scene between them talking in this sort of like modernist art statue area and just standing there. And it's really brilliantly shot. And Darren Morgan also directed the episode. Um, and Dr. They just has this line, they don't care if the truth gets out because the public no longer knows what is meant by the truth. Believe what you want to believe. That's what everybody does now anyways. And that's like such, it's such a like dark, the way that that character delivers that line at the end of this long speech of just like, just believe what you want to believe, Mulder. And it's like Mulder's always been someone who's like, you know, his pursuit of the truth is such a core identity for that character and what the show is about. And the and in a like post-truth world or whatever the fuck we call it now, like the way that the Lost Art of Forehead Sweat addresses that is I think just masterful. So if you are... Not even if you're necessarily a fan of the X-Files, like, I think just, like, watching The Lost Art of Forehead Sweat, if you have a basic knowledge of what the X-Files is, that episode is just an absolute masterpiece. But all the other episodes that are the sort of the uh, Monster of the Week episodes, with the exception of episode two, uh, this, which is a little bit rough, because that has, like, that's tied too much into uh, past X-Files stuff as well with the Lone Gunman characters. But they have... Plus One is a really solid episode because it has... Uh, two characters, the, the two villains playing hangman using their psycho, like psychic powers to kill people that they like fill out their like hangman names with, and there's there's these twins that have the psychic connection, so they're playing this hangman game with each other through their minds. And the male twin and the female twin are both played by the same actress, and it's really that's really fun. Like that, it's all stuff that feels like this is shit like the old X Files did all the time when it was at the top of its game, and they are constantly doing stuff with that. Um, there's the episode that has like basically an unpronounceable title that is all about Mulder and Scully going to get dinner at a sushi restaurant that is fully automated by robots. And it's just this like, it's basically just a like 
absurd parody of how our lives are automated by so many things by like drones that deliver like your Amazon uh, like purchases and like how your like you know home like locks your doors for you and regulates your temperature and does all this shit and like you know your car that has like self-driving cars and it's basically feels like it's set in like the slightly near future and when our lives are entirely automated that episode is amazing and hilarious and it has a basically like the first 15 minutes of that episode have no dialogue in it at all and and Mulder and Scully are brilliant in that uh you have the episode familiar which i believe is the one that has uh a scary doll in it which is always good to have a scary evil possessed doll and then one of the things that's really cool is about this season is that they also have a good mix of bringing back the big names like Darren Morgan, Chris Carter, Glenn Morgan, James Wong that were like the big, big like heavy hitters on the classic X-Files. And then also letting other like, like there are several women directors and writers in the last half of the season, some of which had some involvement in the old X-Files, um, some of which are, are pretty fresh and new to the X-Files. And so instead of the way that season uh, 10 was, which was basically all just the old school guys. This feels like it's a healthy mix of old and new in terms of the, the sort of like the standalone heavy uh, monster of the week episodes. So I think overall X-Files season 11 is fucking awesome. I think people like the X-Files at all. You should check it out. Everybody should watch the lost art of forehead sweat. It's just a brilliant, it's one of the best episodes of television. It's awesome. Very interesting. Uh, so Gillian Anderson has said very forcefully she's done and never wants to do it again. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. Now, she has said that before. Yes. Gillian Anderson tends to come off of X-Files seasons very burnt out. Um, and that's, you know, she has done a lot of this. It's it's That is her yeah. uh, prerogative. Obviously, you can't do at least Mulder Scully X-Files without her. Do you think there's a chance she softens on that and they do more of this? And is there any way they do the X-Files without Mulder and Scully, like, genuinely, like, what they were trying in Season 9? Like, I think the Season 9 thing could have worked, like, because I think Season 9 is actually a pretty good season, like, if you can get past not having Mulder and Scully. I think it is, like, for me, it would just become, like, get some of, like, the great creative voices from the X-Files together and just make a totally different TV show that maybe, like... It could be set in the X-Files universe, whatever the fuck that means. Like, it's like you could have... The Z-Files. Yes, the Z-Files, the Z-Files. Like, I think think it would be kind of meaningless to keep on calling it the X-Files and not have Mulder and Scully, like, after all of this time. Like, that's what those names mean. That does kind of seem to me like the lesson, maybe, of these two seasons is... If you want, if if Gillian Anderson really is done, and again, she's been doing this like half her life, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, and David Duchovny, we kind of never know with him. But if she's really done and you can't do Mulder and Scully anymore, it feels like the lesson is get these guys together and have them do a new show or something. Because like I feel like that could be a huge thing. Yeah, and it feels like there is a gap right now like that X-Files-esque show can fill. That like this show fills. Because like Black Mirror can only make so many episodes a year. You know what I mean? Like Sure, yeah. And, the, and like this feels like a like... You know, it's Black Mirror, but with, like, more character right, and right, more, right. Like, 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 you can kind of connect to but I, having that continuity. I do think there's a little bit of a hunger for, like, more standalone TV storytelling. I agree, yeah. Um, and, and I think this... Because the X-Files has done very well both times it's come back, right? Yeah, I mean, What were the average ratings for this season, does it uh, say? It doesn't say the ratings. Okay. I would just be interested to know. Yeah. Because I know the, the season 10 stuff was huge for Fox yeah. that year. Um, and I would imagine this was big, too. Because this is just... It's something people like. 
and I'm glad to hear it was good. It, it makes me... I still one day want to watch through all of the X-Files, and I'm glad that apparently they're still cranking out good stuff. Yes. It's nuts. Although, unfortunately, they took down the X-Files from Netflix, so you have to... I'd probably get the Blu-rays anyway, because yeah, yeah. I also remind you guys, my PS4 can't get online. I'm not Fair streaming. Enough. I'm not streaming stuff and, these days. You know, and they're not fucking putting Netflix on the Switch for reasons nobody can understand. Yes, that's true. That's the one Switch port that people I feel like aren't begging for enough. Is like, why is that on? What the fucking Switch is so it's weird. Very bizarre because Hulu's been on there for months and it's still the only video app. Exactly. Yeah. I want Crunchyroll first because I am using that. Crunchyroll does have pretty good. I'm able to get Crunchyroll. But well, speaking of Crunchyroll, Jonathan, now did this on purpose? Luckily. If you wanted to, say, watch Crunchyroll on Saturday evenings, it is now once again possible because Dragon Ball Super with episode 131 has finished its current airing when it's gone on hiatus for the movie. Whoever, like, you know, we don't know the full nature of, like, whether or not it's going to come back or if it comes back if it's something else. Who knows? But Crunchyroll has been a situation that since they got Dragon Ball Super, I think it's almost been like a year now since they, they, they picked it up, uh, like clockwork. Every Saturday evening at 7.15pm when the new episode goes up, Crunchyroll is just dead. It's just dead in the water. You can't use it until the next morning. Um, because people like fucking Dragon Ball. People like Dragon Ball Super. I really love Dragon Ball Super. And now that it has over with episode 131 or like it's on hiatus or whatever. It, like, it reaches what feels like a substantive conclusion at the end of the universe survival arc that's like definitely it gives you a wink and a nudge it's like there's going to be more stuff because we are making a movie so it's like you know there's more on the horizon with these characters but it does sort of give you a nice that if they never made another dragon ball tv show this does give you like a nice ending spot to sort of hang your hat on but yeah, yeah dragon ball super is really fucking good jonathan and I should say, we do pretty much know that it, this is going off the air because they don't have the resources to do this and a movie at the same time. Yeah. I mean, the Dragon Ball, the movie they're making, which is branded as Dragon Ball Super, it still doesn't have a full title, but it's going to be a super movie, um, is <laughs> in two ways. I hope it's a good movie. Yeah. And it's called Dragon Ball Super. But yes, it's like one of the, the director is one of the super directors. It's every, the whole staff is super people. So like, it's very clear that this is... We cannot do both things at once. Yeah. So they decided to just wrap it up with this arc. But yeah, I am way behind on Dragon Ball Super. You have now seen the whole thing. I mean, you've talked about it before. You checked in somewhere along the universe survival arc, which is like half the show, right? Yeah, it's it's a really long arc. But I mean, it, it doesn't feel poorly paced at all. Because I think the last time I talked about it was after the Goku-Kefla fight, which was around Thanksgiving. Because that still, like, I think there's a lot of really good fights after that. That fight still has what is maybe the coolest thing I've ever seen in this show happen that okay like I'm, yeah it's fucking awesome but yeah i think that's the last time i checked in on it but uh did it end well do you like it oh god it's so good so yeah i you know the peek behind the curtains like we record these on sunday nights and like i said saturday evening you can't fucking watch anything on Crunchyroll. even if like you are watching yeah. dragon ball super you're kind of fucked um so i had left probably like eight to ten episodes something like that like sort of like stacked up of i sort of watched sort of weekly up to the point after that Kefla fight, that it felt like, okay, they have narrowed down the combatants left in the Universe Survival Tournament to, like, the core. Like, this is, like, heading into the last confrontation, confrontation between Universe 7 and Universe 11. Um, and so I kind of, like, stopped there and it was like, I like watching the show more in big, like, bulk chunks because it's more exciting that way. So then I waited for it to conclude. And then this morning, I got up, walked downstairs, 
turned on my PS4 and just like marathon through what was like two to three hours of Dragon Ball Super, like from the beginning of that last con like fight to the the full conclusion of the arc. And it is a wild fucking ride, dude. Dragon Ball Super has like is is just a fascinating show. Particularly looking at it as this continuation to Dragon Ball Z and con- like contrasting it with Dragon Ball GT, which was the original like failed experiment of a way to continue the show. With like, do you remember off the top of your head how many episodes GT had? Sixty four. Sixty four. So so Dragon Ball Super at one thirty one like well eclipses um what, what it's Dragon almost GT the did. original Dragon Ball because original Dragon Ball is one fifty one. Yeah. So so it, I mean because it's been going well, on continuously for three years yeah. at this point. It'll be three years. It would have been three years if they had gone all the way straight to January, uh, June twentieth. So, like, like pretty close to a full three year run for the show. Like one episode a week, like clockwork, because that's how these shows come out. Um, and yeah, it's they have such a strong understanding of the fundamental characters. Of uh, particularly, like I think the for me, like the thesis of why Dragon Ball Super works. There's a bunch of stuff that they do well. The core thing that they do is make it a two-hander between Goku and Vegeta. And, like, they are the two main characters. Whereas, like, GT abandons Vegeta as a character almost immediately and then barely uses him when he comes back into the show. Dragon Ball Super is soundly about both of those characters as the co-protagonists. GT also doesn't understand the characters it does use. Exactly, yeah. Like, I mean, here's what... The other thesis I think you can make with this is that Toriyama didn't, like, write the new show, but he did give guidance on every story arc. He came up with the main ideas. And... I think Dragon Ball is much more of an auteurist work than people understand. Yes, um, I agree. And I think you can see this in like the original DBZ movies, in DBGT, in some of the filler. When other people write Goku in particular, they don't understand Goku. Akira Toriyama understands Goku. That's what Battle of Gods is all about. Yeah. Is like recapturing who Goku is. And from what I've you know seen and heard, it feels like they get that from the head with Goku in this series... And with Vegeta, and it kind of trickles down from there. And I think it's probably because Toriyama is at least looking over their shoulder. Yeah, and and you have the the introduction of the Beerus and Whis characters, which are just amazing and and one of my favorite parts of the show and serve as such a strong backbone for the expansion of where Dragon Ball Super goes. And it's one of the things that's really satisfying about the the Universe Survival Tournament is that it is... It feels like like if they do bring back another ongoing TV show, I wouldn't mind if they rebranded it because there is something about the way that this wraps up the like expanded cosmology, like the weird cosmology of Dragon Ball that is such a part of that show or in series has always been about like Goku like climbing up the ladders of like oh I met like this really talented martial artist guys like then I met this weird cat guy who's like watching over this part of the world and then I met literally god it was just something that when you learn japanese and you realize that kami just means god you're like that means something very different i don't know if they could have sold that character by just calling him hi god in in the english dub but like kami is literally just god of the earth and then he meets king kai or kaiosama who is the the ruler of this like quadrant of the galaxy and then he meets the supreme kai or shinkai and then like like sees gets that whole bit of it and then obviously with uh, toriyama introduced the beerus and Whis characters in the first movie battle of gods that that add this whole other dynamic to it and then you go one above that where you find out that Whis and beerus are just the god of destruction and angel like sort of like supervisor for this universe universe seven and there's like 13 13 universes and the universe survival arc puts them all together and the best 10 fighters from each of those universes battle together so that they can survive 
Zenosama, who is the absolute, which literally means in Japanese, the king of everything, who is a weird dude who sits at the top of everything that has decided he's going to erase all the, the, the universes that do not survive in this tournament because he's basically collecting all the weakest universes and saying, like, I think they literally call it, like, your human level is at, like, it's, like, really low. Like, you got a really bad human level, guys. It's, like, these other three or four universes are, like, top performers at human level. You're not quite there. You guys kind of suck. And so they put them all together in this big tournament, and whoever, like, survives wins. And then they also can make a wish on the Super Dragon Balls, which is something introduced earlier in Dragon Ball Super, which are Dragon Balls, but even better. You can basically... You know, instead of summoning the dragon and being like, hey, dragon, there are two Saiyans coming to Earth. Can you kill them? And the dragon being like, sorry, guys, I'm not good enough. Like, that Vegeta dude's pretty tough. I can't just kill him for you, which is something they try at Dragon Ball Z that I feel like everybody forgets that Bulma's just, like, tries to get the dragon to fucking kill the Saiyans, and he can't do it. Instead of that, the Super Dragon Balls can, can grant any wish. And so that is, like, that whole story and how it comes to a conclusion feels like it is a really effective summation of the sort of, like, the, the things that Dragon Ball, the primary things that Dragon Ball Super explored along the way. It also has the really great Trunks and Goku Black arc in the middle that does deal with some of that stuff, but kind of, like, at, like, a, like an off angle, like, it's not head-on the way that the rest of the show is. But yeah, it is such a fucking... It's such a tighter show than I think some people give it credit for and that I think a lot of people expected it to be. Particularly when it is deep into these like major arcs, the Universe 6 arc, the Goku Black arc, and the Universe Survival arc. Like Those arcs are really, really well scripted. I think they have a fantastic fundamental understanding of the characters, how to maneuver the characters. And then also what was really gratifying about this final arc and like the kind of the conclusive notes that they end on is that stuff of you talking about with, they understand Goku and they understand Vegeta and they in particular, they just understand the like underlying philosophies of Dragon Ball as a sort of like martial arts story that there's a lot of stuff going on there that's not necessarily like, you know, the biggest sort of like most brilliant themes ever but there is stuff about you know training and improvement and friendship and how all those things and like overcoming one's own boundaries and limitations and how all those things come together that is at the heart of dragon ball has always been at the heart of dragon ball and that's where a lot of the i think villains are you know the the polar opposite of those values and and kind of toriyama always plays that really well and i think the universe survival arc has just such a fucking like rock hard grasp on those things and those like underlying themes and ideas and character moments and qualities that make Dragon Ball function and make it tick as a series that it is and and it's so exhibited in the last like sort of big section of Dragon Ball Super and I think in particular the way that they decide to end the tournament and the final like and how the final fight sort of proceeds and evolves and, and the dynamics involved therein is really inventive really clever and then also it's just hype as fuck it's got great music. Like, the Universe Survival arc in particular has some just really, really fun songs that when they pop up, you know they're like, okay, this song is playing. Some shit's going to go down and it's going to be awesome. They they clearly saved up some budget for the last couple of episodes. So it's like, they, it feels like they spent their time animating the last couple of episodes because the animation is really phenomenal uh, near the end. And it's just, I think anybody who has any affection for Dragon Ball, like, has to watch Dragon Ball Super because it is a brilliant continuation of of what Dragon Ball Z did. But it also, like, I think one of my favorite parts about it is that it doesn't just feel like Toriyama's Dragon Ball. It feels like Toriyama gives this direction, 
it like it gives an overall sort of like idea of where to go but it also is able to deliver on like setup and payoff and like character stuff that sometimes can feel slightly fan servicey though in a way that I'm totally fine with but it does something that like Toriyama is I think a fantastic brilliant storyteller he's also an absurdly eccentric storyteller that like feels like he he's always flying by the seat of his pants right it's like, the best thing about him like when Toriyama puts the word Frieza on the page in like in a panel of Dragon Ball, the manga, that is the moment he came up with the idea for that character. Yes. When he writes down the word Super Saiyajin as like a fucking like thought bubble for Vegeta, that is the moment he came up with that concept. He never had that idea beforehand. He wasn't setting up that idea. He had no idea that's where he was going to go. He had that idea. He's like, we're going to do this now. He's like the greatest improv storyteller ever. Yeah, it's the and it's some of the, one of the best things about it is that it makes Dragon Ball hard to predict, and but it's like. He has such a fundamental grasp on, particularly like if you read the manga, which I did for the first time a couple of years ago, like you you get the sense of like how kinetic a storyteller he is visually, and I think that's like the core success of where Dragon Ball comes from is he's a brilliant, brilliant comic book uh, artist and being able to tell stories visually that way. But it's like yeah, he it, like there's Dragon Ball should not work. Like there's no like I've never seen anything else do the shit that Dragon Ball is able to do. You know, like no other storyteller would ever have the main hero defeat the main villain and then immediately have that main villain be resurrected and then defeated by another character that comes out of nowhere. That's not a decision anybody would ever make, but that is what he does with the Frieza shit and it's amazing and it just captures your imagination. And so Dragon Ball Super has some of that like Toriyama like spirit and and vision behind it but it also does execute on like sort of more traditional character fundamentals that I think really come into play in the universe survival arc where there's a lot of setup set up early on and there's a lot of payoff later in the like not Toriyama way but it works really well and it, it feels like I'm not going to say it's like the best of both worlds because I don't necessarily think that Dragon Ball Super is better than than original Dragon Ball. But I think you get a slightly different flavor and perspective on these characters because like the way that they explore the character of Vegeta is kind of more direct and intentional than it ever feels like Toriyama actually did. Like he sets those things up and he ha- understands who those characters are and they function perfectly in his plots. But Dragon Ball Super does stuff by pairing Vegeta with different characters, pairing like creating characters like the Universe Six Saiyans that allow you to see Vegeta in a different light, and that's like, and they do that with every single character. Like Gohan has some amazing stuff. They do some brilliant stuff with Gohan and Piccolo that is like the epitome of setup payoff that like reaches back into Dragon Ball's past in a way that Toriyama never would do. But these creators and the people involved with Dragon Ball Super understand how to do that stuff tactfully and make it not feel like cheap fan service, but like legitimate character payoff and development. And so I think I think there are like a lot of Dragon Ball fans that kind of are underselling just how good Dragon Ball Super is. Uh, this might partially be me just being so fresh off of what is just an amazing last 10 episodes, but I think it's a great, fantastic series that people should should check out. Obviously, like, if you if you understand, like, do not start with Dragon Ball Super... It would be very confusing if you did, but if you if you have even just like a sort of basic understanding of Dragon Ball, I think it's well worth checking out. Awesome. All right. Next thing on the outline is I was going to talk about an anime real quick. I okay. finally watched. This is not current at no. all, but it relates to things we talk about in the show. I finally watched all of Persona 4, the animation, because my brother has now played all the Persona games, well, 3, 4, and 5. And we watched the Persona 3 movies together, and then we were like, well, we gotta see Persona 4, the animation. 
And so we watched through, I had the DVDs of that, we watched all of that, now we're watching the golden animation, which is on Crunchyroll, very nice of them, Um, and I'm split on Persona 4 the animation. Uh I find, like, the TV series, the the original 26 episodes of Persona 4 the animation, like, based on vanilla Persona 4, before you get to the golden, I'm like 50-50 on it, I think some of it's pretty good, I think some of it bores me to tears when it's just like... Whenever it's directly adapting the main arcs of the game, like, you know, Kanji is thrown into the TV and we got to go rescue Kanji and here's the dungeon and here's the fight and we're going to do the fight. I, my eyes just kind of glaze over yeah. because on, for one, like, Persona 4, the animation is not that good looking a show. Like, it's like, gold, the golden animation looks a hundred times better because it's done by A1 Pictures who did Persona 3, the yeah. movies and stuff, and are just a better animation studio than whoever did 4. Um... But it doesn't. It's not that. It doesn't have enough of a budget. It doesn't look that good when it's doing fights and stuff. Like it kind of thinks it's cooler than it is, and I just found it kind of dull. When it is like inventing and spinning and like just doing fun stuff with the characters in the way Persona Four does give you a lot of rope to do, it is a lot of fun. I don't think it's ever particularly deep, but it is fun. The best thing the whole show does is how they characterize Yu Narukami. It is amazing how well yes. they do Yunarukami. Like, every bit as good as, I think, what Persona 3 does with its protagonist, the, the movies do, just in a much less dramatic fashion, you know? But they really do turn Narukami into a, a fascinating, great, really funny, charming, central character. Um, I wound up watching the show with the English dub, because that's how my brother wanted to watch it. Sure. Um, and it is, it, it's good. It is the, the people from the game, from the, it's the golden cast. Right. Uh, other than Naoto, who, we still don't know who voices Naoto in the English dub of Persona 4. Which is so appropriate that yes. I hope we never find out. Uh, but this was a different actress, and not the same actress who does her in the spinoffs. So, huh. totally. And not a very good Naoto. But the other ones are good. And Johnny Young Bosch, who does Narukami. Yeah. Huge discovery in that show. He is amazing voicing Narukami in that. Because I've heard him in some of the spinoffs and stuff. Like Persona 4 Dancing All Night. But he's really good in the anime dub. I will say the anime dub, I am 99% sure after the first DVD set, it switched writers. Because the writing... Sounds like they're reading fan subs. Like they've added in so much more cursing than I'm than I think is there in the original show or game. I mean, you know how you translate Japanese into like English cursing is like I think a hard thing that like there's no like there's it's, no like there's no like one right way to do it, right? Sure, but also like you also have to understand the reason why we yeah. don't usually take Japanese swears and have them all saying fuck over and over is because fuck has a different feel to it than equivalent Japanese swears do. Exactly, yeah. It has a different harshness. So, like, the writing gets really rough in the dub, and that's not the show's fault, but the, the acting is still good. Anyway, so that might have been part of my enjoyment. I tend, I would enjoy this more with Japanese voices, even though yeah, I like... Yeah. I like the English voices in the game, but it's a little different in the you show. Get Yui Horie is playing Chie. She's very good. She is very good. Because uh, now I'm watching The Golden, which has no dub. And we'll probably And you get, get Hanazawa Kana playing uh, Marie. She's great. She's awesome. She's, she's great. She's awesome. But anyway, so like, there's, I do think like the main story stuff of the animation gets better down the home stretch. Like from the part where Nanako has her incident, not to spoil Persona 4. They do that all very well in the animation. I think the last couple episodes are good, although the way they choose to handle the true ending thing is so baffling. Like, the show ends twice, and it ends really abruptly, and has no denouement. It's it's a very strange decision. Well, it was originally released as an OVA, right? So it, like, yeah. wasn't originally aired. Like, there, there are a couple of shows that have done that. It was, yeah, it's well, but it weird. means that it ends abruptly twice, because yeah. the, the broadcast ending in episode 25, they defeat the bad guy, and it's over. There's zero denouement. 
and then you go back and do it all again, and you still kind of have zero danger. I mean, there's some well-done stuff in there, but, like, anyway, I, I enjoyed parts of it, but I also think the best parts of the animation were strip-mined and put into the golden and done better there, you know? Sure. Like, the stuff on Tatsumi Port Island, the Persona 3 stuff. Yeah. Was that in Vanilla Persona 4? That was added to the Golden, right? No, that was in Vanilla Persona 4. I it think was? they might have expanded that scene a little bit in okay. the Golden. I don't remember. But it would, you definitely go there in, Persona, in the original Persona 4. Okay. Uh, is the King's Game where they're getting drunk? Is yes, that... that's in the original Persona 4. Oh, wow. Okay. Anyway, I just assumed that was a Golden Edition. No. But, uh, okay, that's well done. But, like, some of the other things they do, like a lot of the summer stuff, that's creative. Um, I know, there's one other thing I know that's in the anime that they added to the Golden there's a couple of things like that. But, like, yeah, it's, I think it's a very kind of up and down show for me where it's, it's honestly too straight an adaptation to be that interesting to me. I think The Golden is great. I'm only a couple episodes into it, but I really like it. I think it being completely free from, it, like, it follows the general narrative skeleton of Persona 4, but it doesn't have to bother with any of the plot shit. It can just do its own fun stuff with the characters. That is a joy. Like, I think the writing is much better. I think the pace is much tighter. The most important thing is the animation is such an enormous, huge leg up. Like, the first episode where they, like, redo the first episode of Persona 4, but as a new game plus. And the way you have, like, billions of shadows coming at Narukami, and he has, like, super Izanagi defeating them. It's a better action sequence than anything in the original animation, like, by a factor of ten. It's amazing to behold. There are also really fun touches, like he picks, like if you played the game, you know, he picks the like hard to pick option that you wouldn't be able to pick yes. in the dialogue normally at the beginning of the game that you would only be able to pick on a new game plus yeah. when you have your stats up. So yep. that stuff is really clever. Yeah, so I, I have fun with that. I think it having Marie as the spine gives it a really good clear shape that it, like, it, that's the kind of thing this show is better at adapting than, like, the action stuff. So it gives this show a narrative spine that I think it has an easier time adapting in interesting ways than the original show had. You know, my opinion could change over time, but I've, I've, I'm laughing so hard at it. It's so fun. I'm just, I'm enjoying it so much, and it very much makes me excited for Persona 5, the animation, which yeah. is also A1 Pictures. Uh, who are very good at Persona animation. So, anyway, yes. that's my thoughts for now. I'll let you know when I finish Persona 4 The Golden. But I was kind of like... I got, I got pretty bored watching the animation at a certain point. Now I'm like, I'm excited when I get to watch The Golden. Yeah, I'm, I, like, I basically agree with you with those. I think for me, cause since you're like pretty early on with The Golden, I felt like The Golden animation is like... It's it's a really episode by episode kind of show to me that like... And like it's because it's the nature of how they're adapting it. I will say for Persona 4 The Animation... There are those two episodes in the middle that are like during the summer. Those are the two best episodes. Yes, when when Nanako is that's where we pulled the uh, theme song, the Koisuru Me Tante song yes. from for the top of this episode, where Nanako is playing the love detective and trying to follow uh, you Nanakami around and figure out what he's doing, and it puts all the social link stuff in there. That's fucking brilliant. I just want to shout out that. Part need, of that and needed, the rest of it is like rough. It needed more of that to like. Because that's where they're really changing things and adapting things. And yeah, not they're just... being yeah they're being clever about how they take things from the game and put them and adapt them into a way you could present it in an anime. Whereas yeah. the main dungeon stuff, they kind of lift the way it's presented in the game as closely as you can to an animated series. It feels like I'm watching someone's YouTube playthrough, and yeah. I don't do that ever. It's yeah. boring. So yeah. 
anyway. Um, but it's fine. Like it's it's a it's if you if you like Persona Four, it's a fun little show. Um, but yeah, did listen to Beauty of Destiny, and that is a fucking awesome song. And then they replace it halfway through, and it pissed me off because yeah. Beauty of Destiny is too good to replace. It is, but so, you know the song you replace it with is also good. It's okay. It's also it's just the way that the anime business works. You, you yes. always. You, you get every that, twelve episodes. Yeah, you get to episode thirty. You're like motherfucker. I was just getting into that song. And now it's gone. Yep. All right. Uh, you want to talk some video games, Sean? Let's talk about the video games. Okay, I'm going to start with one I haven't played much of. Okay. And this is Detective Pikachu. Yeah. This is the Pikachu newest made Tante. Just came out on um, March 23rd this Friday. I've only really been able to put a couple hours into it. I've only played chapter one. I think there's eight in the game. Really liking it so far. But more notable, Sean. Is I did get the amiibo. Oh god, he brought it with him. Oh my, look at that thing, Sean. Jesus Christ. It's huge. It's an enormous Detective Pikachu amiibo. It's like six inches tall. He's got the hat. It's very intricately modeled. Uh, the He's base. very stern. It's a very stern Pikachu. It is. Um, one of my favorite things about Detective Pikachu the game is that Pikachu is fat again. Because yes. they went through that whole period where they slimmed, they fucking fat shamed Pikachu, yeah. slimmed him down like a Victoria's Secret model, and now they've let him balloon back up a little bit. And Detective Pikachu is proper pudgy Pikachu as he is in this amiibo. My favorite thing, like just that's so funny about this amiibo, is the stand, like the base, which is the thing you put on the contact point yeah. to activate things. It's bigger than the 3DS screen you use to activate it. I haven't tried it yet, so I don't know how it works. But this is like... I mean, this is easily the biggest Amiibo they've ever made. Or at least of the ones I have. Um, and it's just got this enormous fucking base that looks like a drink coaster. But yes, it is P- Detective Pikachu doing like the stop, you know, yeah. pose. And he's got the uh, Deerstalker cap on. It's it's a very fun little Amiibo. It did cost me $25. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> that was on discount because of Best Buy's GCU thing. Um, which does work for Amiibo. Do you yes. know what it does in the game? I think it unlocks more animations where he talks to you. Okay. Which is fun. Like, those are little... There, there's a lot of, like... One of the mechanics in the game is that while you're around investigating, uh, on the touch screen, if Pikachu has something to say to you, he'll be like, you know, hey! and Hey, you, human! Hey, <laughs> you... Yes, and you touch Pikachu, and then it goes into a 3D animation where he'll like be doing his detective thing, where he'll be walking back and forth and like stroking his chin, and he'll have something to say. I think it unlocks more of those. Okay, which is kind of cool. That would be that would be the reward I'd want because the best thing about Detective Pikachu is Detective Pikachu. Yeah. It's got it where it counts. Detective Pikachu is an amazing character. The 3DS game, as released in the U.S., does have dual audio. You can do English or Japanese with English subs. Uh, the English is fine. I can't. I think that there's probably nothing wrong with it. But you want to play this in Japanese because mm-hmm. Japanese Detective Pikachu is a wonder to behold. It is this amazing, deep, sonorous voice that Pikachu has. He's such an interesting character. Like he really does think he's a great detective. He's really into like helping you as as Tim Goodman, the main human character, which Tim I love. Timu Goodman, it's great. Jesus Christ, yeah, Tim Goodman. You know, figure out how to be a good detective too. He's really into coffee. He's horny as fuck because he's hitting on every woman he sees. Because that's what... Like human women? Yeah. I mean, they can't understand him. You're the only oh, one right. who can understand yeah, him. Yeah, I saw that plot point from one of the trailers. Yeah. I assumed that this was a Pikachu that could just speak English. Instead, it's a human that can understand this Pikachu. Well, Pikachu thinks he's speaking English. He doesn't understand why other people can't hear him. But yes, they hear Pika Pika in a low voice. Uh, but the Japanese actor is so great. And like the animations on him, like this is easily one of the most graphically advanced 3DS games. I was saying this to my brother the other day. The late era 3DS games are all so graphically 
like amazing. I cannot wait to see what these developers do when they're set loose on the Nintendo Switch because there's a lot of like Western developers who look at the Switch and be like, that's kind of underpowered. And I think there's a lot of Japanese 3DS developers who are like, that's Mecca over there? That's our Holy Land? That's a NVIDIA Tegra 720p. Holy fuck. Do you know the resolution of the 3DS screen? You know, and I'm just, and actually Kirby Star Allies, which we're going to talk about a little bit, is evidence of that because it is a graphically mind blowing game to me. Um, But yes, it's it's like so. So Detective the Detective Pikachu game, it's all 3D. The cutscenes are 3D. It looks really good. Detective Pikachu in particular is just animated really, really well. Um, The game has really fun writing, like Nintendo. I think if you asked me 10 years ago, I would like writing would not have been one of the first five things I associated with Nintendo games. There's nothing wrong with that. It's yeah. just not what they did. We've had a couple of years now where Nintendo has had really well-written games. And not just from things you'd expect, like a Fire Emblem, but like Paper Mario Color Splash. Right. And Detective Pikachu here. And some of the recent Pokemon games have had better writing where they're just really entertaining. And Detective Pikachu, it's got a cool like world. I like the plot so far. The writing is very funny. It's, it's like a really good Saturday morning cartoon to watch and then the gameplay I've only done the first chapter but the first case I did it's pretty basic and handholdy it's also the first one I assume it gets more in depth but I still had fun with it because it makes you feel like a detective and even if it's kind of an easy mystery that's always a fun thing to do of like where Pikachu will be like all right let's lay out the clues and you'll like you have all your clues like ooh, I have all my clues what where does this one go and you're like I've solved the mystery there's just that like, from when you're a little kid to when you're an adult, that is a fun thing to do. Right. Right? Yeah. And the game gets that. And uh, I'm happy to be playing something on my 3DS again. Uh, good little system. Still still chugging away with potentially its last non-remake game. Yes. But yes. And uh, yeah, I have a fucking giant Pikachu amiibo. Yeah, eventually you will have to put your 3DS to rest because it has been crushed to death by <laughs> this gigantic Pikachu. Yes. Like, Damn. that's like Pikachu is closer to its, like, it's like on its way to being life-size in a way yes. that's kind of uncomfortable, right? Because Pikachu's not that tall. Yeah. I mean, it's so funny because when I put it, I put it on my little amiibo shelf, which I have a, I, on my desk I have this, like, little raised thing that... I now used to... I just put all my Amiibos on there. And I put this on there in front, and I realized it blocked most of the Amiibos from my sight. So I'm like, I'm going to have to put him in the back. He's you have to tall. put him in the back where it looks like he's this, like, furious general marshalling <laughs> these tiny Nintendo characters in front of him. Okay, it. I will have to arrange them and take a picture of that and put that out with this episode, because that will be funny. Yeah. Because you're correct. All right. But I've played Detective Pikachu. Sean, what have you played? Um, I have been going going back... Back in time, Jonathan. Back to a, a simpler time, a more innocent time, a time when we weren't, you know, constantly on the verge of collapse as a nation and extinction as a species. To the the nice, hopeful year of two thousand eight, uh, yes. when when Electronic Arts published a game published or developed by Criterion called Burnout Paradise. Two thousand eight is the year the global financial system collapsed. Yeah, I was fair. in high school, okay. so you know that was. Whatever. My parents were stressed about that. I was stressed about being able to get all the cars in Burnout Paradise or some shit, you know? Um, But yeah, Burnout Paradise came out. It's the last Burnout game. I played a little bit of Burnout 3 when that, like, original Xbox game when I rented it, but it didn't, like, grab me. And Burnout Paradise is, like, 
the one racing game I've ever fallen in love with. Like, it's a genre I tend, I tend to not to dive that deep into. I'm not, like, I don't care that much about cars in real life either, so that has kind of, like, extended to me not caring about cars that much in video game stuff. But it's something that, like, I enjoy, and I still enjoy stuff in, like, a GTA or Steeping Dogs or something like that where you can race cars, and, and that's a part of the bigger game. I always liked that. But there was something about the reception to Burnout Paradise at the time and just where I was with like, you know, I'm going to give racing games a try and picked up Burnout Paradise and fucking fell in love with that game. And they re-released it as a remastered version on the PS4, Xbox One, PC, not on Nintendo Switch, not yet. To, to be fair, I get it with this one. Yeah. I do. I mean, they could put out a version of it. but Yeah, for sure. But yeah, and it's, it's Burnout Paradise with all the DLC because I never ended up playing any of the DLC. And they released a lot. Like there's a full like little island add-on they did. They put in motorcycles and these like licensed movie cars with the like Ghostbusters car and all that kind of stuff. So you get all the DLC in, in one package. I think it's 40 bucks. Super worth it. Um, and I think it, it's 30. Let me look this up. Yeah, but it's, uh, it is... Like and there, there's something about the release of Burnout Paradise Remastered that is such a like, it is like this grim realization of the racing game, the racing genre in video games has been stymied since 2008. Like there, this it it's this game feels as fresh in 2018 as it did when it came out, and that's like weird. Like usually one of these remasters come out and you play it and you're like. Oh yeah, like you know, Dead Rising was a great game, but Dead Rising feels like a game that came out in 2006. It doesn't feel like it's a new video game that just got released. If you told me that Burnout Paradise was like a new racing game that came out developed by a small team, that that like would be excused the like you know like old last generation kind of like graphics and stuff, I would 100% believe you because everything about the way that this game controls, the way that is like structured with the open world, the like heavy and deep uh, online integration with leaderboards and like being able to join other people's sessions and create like random challenges and doing the like all the the time trials on the different streets and and the integration with all of that is so is smoother than like the last couple of Need for Speed games I played than like Need for Speed Rivals which just like was fucking fucked to by its own right. You haven't so. played Forza Horizon three. That, that one is, is true. like I and I've heard a lot of like from you describing it now too. That does sound like it follows in the footsteps of Burnout yeah. Paradise a lot, and that game is like a, that's a ten out of ten perfect game. So yeah, but Burnout Paradise is a like eleven out of ten fucking best in class, best in genre, and that's that's not like just me, the guy who like doesn't play that many racing games, saying that. But that's like right, right, right. the general opinion about Burnout Paradise is like. Because, like, I mean, I think there might have been one or two sort of open-world-ish racing games before Burnout Paradise. But Burnout Paradise was the game that came out that was like, yo, man, what if fucking, like, open-world... And this is 2008! This is well before the, like, glut of open-world bullshit that started happening around 2010. Like, yeah. open-world, like, this is the same year that fucking GTA 4 came out, right? This is, like, open-world was still a relatively fresh thing that wasn't... That, like, an open-world game meant a game that played, like, Grand Theft Auto... It was like it was did not mean a game where you raced a car and like there were different challenges at every single intersection and like all these integrated online time trials and, and this really interesting progression. Like that was just a different thing back then. And now I think one of the reasons why I say that it feels like the racing genre has stymied is that even though you have games like the Forza Horizon games and some of the later Need for Speed games, none of them have pushed past Burnout Paradise. Like Burnout Paradise is still like there doing that shit. 
And it's been 10 years. It's been 10 fucking years. And and the only games that are even really doing it anymore are the Forza Horizon games because the Need for Speed games that come out all fucking suck. And they have no idea what to do with that with that whole franchise at EA. And they, they sunk Burnout after Burnout Paradise. But yeah, I have been having an unbelievable time going back to this game because I haven't played it since probably around 2008, maybe like 2009-ish because I didn't get it right when it came out, but a little bit after um, and it is so much fun. The sense of speed in Burnout Paradise is utterly sensational. And, and like the way that drifting works, it's extremely accessible. So if you haven't played a lot of racing games, you can jump right into Burnout Paradise. But it does feel like it has a tremendous skill ceiling that as you race and as you learn the layout of the city, as you learn how to like sort of get a feel for the different kinds of cars and how they control and how to best sort of maneuver around corners and drift, when to try to drift, when to just do a normal turn, when to like slam on your e-brake and just like total like do a like total 90 turn and like slam to the side of a building and use your boost to like jet through it. There, there's a lot of skill involved, particularly once you get up the, the sort of the ladder and get to your like A rank driving uh, classes and stuff or like races and stuff like that. It, it can be extremely challenging, but very rewarding to play the game well. It has this just pure and utter joy baked into every single fiber of this game, which is maybe one of the things that obviously I have not played the Force Horizon games, but I've watched like a lot of video of them to sort of get a sense of what they're like. And that's something that those games don't quite seem like they capture to me of you have in Burnout Paradise, this just utterly infectious uh, pop punk soundtrack that is very mid 2000s, but it like, it's all, it's all really happy stuff. You know, it has just got that like, like really nice beat. All the songs, well, not all the songs, but like a bunch of the songs on the soundtrack are really good. Not as a song I would go around like listening to normally, but for a game like this, it's not normally my genre of music, but it's extremely just like fun and and poppy and and it just like really gets you going and like it gets your motor going, as a a pun might say. Um, And that like sort of that title of it being Burnout Paradise and you being in Paradise City is so just like what it feels is you're you're living in this strange car utopia there are no human beings like you are just there's nobody's driving these fucking cars which is something that i kind of don't even notice anymore and i was reading some stuff of like people playing this game for the first time being like this is weird like there's no human beings in the city and all the cars are just empty and i was like well, yeah, it's, it's like, I don't know if it's... So it's like the Pixar movie, Cars. Yeah, except for it was 2008, which is, is that before when Cars came out? No, like, Cars is 2006. Okay. Cars yeah. has been with us longer than anybody remembers. That is that is very true. But yeah, it does... And I don't know if it's supposed to be a world of sentient cars, or they're like, what the fuck is the point of modeling humans in this racing game? Sure. But but it does just add like this fun flavor to it. Um, they You have DJ Atomica is just the best he's so upbeat and you know after you finish a race and you're kind of like driving around the city you just get this guy come on and be like the other day you know i was driving down the highway and man there was this massive traffic jam and so i just jumped right off that highway and onto the railroad tracks because everybody here knows in paradise city if you want to get somewhere fast you ride those railroad tracks all the way all the way to you know the observatory it's like you know, here's DJ Atomica just checking in. I saw a crazy driver just do a 360 spin off of a ramp by the by the waterfront. Man, Paradise City, 
best place to live. And he's just constantly popping in with these, like, nothing bad happens because you're living in this utopian paradise city of immortal car people that when they crash, they just respawn and regenerate fully formed. And it's just like, everyone's like, yeah, you crashed, man. That was fucking awesome and crazy and wicked cool. I will say this does sound a lot like Forza Horizon 3, at least to me, in that it's everyone's super peppy and wants you to have a good time. And I do think it's a good model for a racing game. It's like there's an unbelievable earnestness and authenticity that it just sells it in a way I don't know I've ever seen any piece of media strike this tone of like it should be... The corniest bullshit, which is kind of like of the video stuff I saw, Forza Horizon, like 1, 2, and 3, kind of felt like this, like, it's kind of a bit too corny. This is just like, it fucking just sells it, man. You know, it, like, you load up the game and it starts playing Paradise City by Guns N' Roses and all the menu noises and the fucking sound design of this game, the engine noises for the cars are so throaty and, and every car has a really different engine sound, which is something... When I played the game the first time, I had I was just playing off my TV speakers. Now I have like a half decent sound bar, and so that's something that I'm really appreciating this time that I did the first time around. But it's just I'm having so much fucking fun playing this ten year old video game in a way that I'm utterly thrilled with because it's it's that kind of thing of just it doesn't it feels like it hasn't aged a day like it that's feels awesome. so fresh. Um, and I would highly encourage people if you have not, if you never played Burnout Paradise, to check out this remastered version. Or if you did play Burnout Paradise, I think it is as good as it has ever been, and is well worth playing through because it is—it's a game that's like impossible to put down. Yeah, that's awesome. I—I yeah. uh, I looked up the price, by the way. Here's why I was confused. It is technically forty. Best Buy has it for thirty. And that's Best Buy's standard price, so if you have the Best Buy Gamers Club thing, it's only $23. So Best Buy has it for almost 50% off right now. That, that so, is a hell of a price to pick up, pick up that game. Yeah, I might have to pick it up. I, it is, I'm really only playing things on Switch right now, but, you know, we'll see. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll switch on over to PS4 and play some Burnout Paradise. Fuck you. Fuck you for that pun. <laughs> you, don't get, you don't get to just do that. You don't get to just throw that down on this show. I'm sorry. When Actually, I still here's like it's just it's been inconvenient lately because I've yeah. moved and all this stuff for me to play my PS4 like like having the time to sit down on my couch downstairs and play like a, a linked like a, a, a console game has just been hard like yeah. I still haven't finished Dragon Ball Fighters or Digimon Story Cyber right. Hackers Memory um, so it's kind of in the backlog but yes I would I, I'm glad they did it I'm glad it got a remaster. I feel like I've never, I've always wanted to play this game, so I'm just super yeah. happy it's here. It's so good. And I do think, like, think about the Switch stuff, I think it is really worth playing the game on a bigger TV because that gives yeah, yeah, you yeah. the sense of speed. You oh, know? sure, yeah. yeah. No, I'm, I don't object to it being on PS4 yeah. only. Like, I get it. It's a, and it's a remastered, and it, I hear it looks very nice and everything. So, yeah. I, uh, when I have more time and focus in my life, it will probably be on the, on the backlog, but there's plenty to play in the meantime. Uh, you want me to talk about some games? Yeah, what else have you been playing? Alright, I'm going to start with one I talked about two or three podcasts ago, which is the indie game Celeste, right. um, which I'm playing on the Switch, but you can play it PS4, Xbox, PC, so you have no excuse to play this game. Uh, I don't have much more to add beyond what I've talked about before. I think Celeste is easily the best game I've played so far this year. It will take an, an awful lot to push it off of number one. Because as I said, I think in our previous conversation, I think this really does solidify my thoughts. I think it is as perfect, and I, I mean I like capital P perfect, a marriage of like narrative, theme, 
you know, the textual side of a video game, character and game design, aesthetics, graphics, sound, the the game side of the video game, the gameplay, as I've ever seen in a in a Western game, certainly. You know, like I often say, like one of the reasons I adore the Persona games so much is because of how perfectly they gel all right. those things together. Celeste does that as well as I've I, I've ever seen, especially in a concentrated burst of like a ten hour campaign kind of thing. You know. And uh, I think it is utterly magical. It is challenging in the absolute best ways. It is addictive to play. It is gorgeous to look at. It made me tear up at certain points. And the final level took me two and a half hours to beat. I didn't know it would take that long. It was one of those things where I started playing at 11 at night. I finished at 1.30 in the morning. My hands hurt from gripping the controller. My eyes were bleary and bloodshot. And it couldn't have been a more perfect way to finish that game and literally reach the peak of the mountain, which is the goal of the game, and feel as exhausted but in the most rewarding way as the character. And yeah, it is a magical must-play game. It's only $20. It's, you know, if you're not going to go through an 100% it, it's like I would say a good 10-hour campaign. Hmm. Um, play this fucking game. It is the, the biggest recommendation I would give to a game so far this year. You must play Celeste. Okay. <laughs> this is the kind of thing like like I would evangelize for the way you do Nier Automata or something. Right. Play Celeste. It's so good. You have no excuse. Um, all right, but I'm also playing Kirby Star Allies. Okay, for the Nintendo Switch, which is the big first party release of the month for the Nintendo Switch. It's been out for a little over a week when we're recording this, and I'm not quite done with the main campaign because I am playing it completely so far co-op with my brother, um, and so I've just been waiting to play it when he's around, you know. Right. Um, and then I've been going back in and filling in some of the gaps. Like if we get through a level and we didn't 100% it, I go back and do those. Uh, I really like Kirby Star Allies. It is not a great game, and it it really does, I think, in some ways, for a lot of people, suffer by comparison to the incredible like first year that Nintendo Switch had. In right. that, you know, if you're viewing this as the successor to The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, and Splatoon 2, and Mario Plus Rabbids, and Mario Odyssey, and for people who were into that, Xenoblade Chronicles 2, or anything right. like that... It is not on that kind of par. It, its pleasures are much simpler, and it is a an aggressively easy game to play. It is also aggressively charming. It looks utterly fucking gorgeous. Like even if you don't play it, just like get find a good 1080p YouTube video of this thing and like look at the backdrops and everything. It really does feel like this is one of those cases where a, a team that had been making 3DS games because you had like. Kirby Triple Deluxe and Kirby Planet Robobot on the 3DS, and this is the direct sequel to those, the same team, and really does feel like set free to make a big HD game. They made some visually just amazing stuff. And the music is really great. Like, I would love a soundtrack to this game because I'm really enjoying the music. Um, and it's charming as hell. All the animations are great. All the different powers Kirby and his friends get, just the way they do it all. The game just exudes charm to me in the way Kirby tends to do. Uh, and I do find the gameplay really interesting with the asterisk that I think it is best enjoyed in co-op. Hmm. And if you really think like you have no one you're ever going to want to play it with, I might skip Kirby Star Allies unless you're just like a huge Kirby fan. You're probably going to like it. But like, what is fun to me about it is sitting on the couch with my brother there, playing through this, like figuring out how to get through levels together. Not that there's much difficult about it, but like you know, just enjoying this the the general flow of the game together. It because it is a game about co-op. It's co-op 
with computers if you don't have a person there. You know, you have Kirby and your star allies, I guess you would call them, because Kirby can take enemies and make them friends, and you get a, a trail of at least, you know, it's a four-person team. And it really does follow in, I think, the the trend of what Nintendo's been doing since New Super Mario Bros. Wii, where they started doing those 2D co-op games that are more fun than they ever get credit for, because I think most game journalists don't ever play in co-op. Right. And they don't experience that side of the game, and so it doesn't get talked about enough. But like that, and Donkey Kong Country Returns, and the other Mario games they've done like this, uh, Yoshi's Woolly World was like this. I really like these couch co-op 2D platformer games Nintendo is making. It's because no one else does this anymore. And it is a really unique, fun experience. And, you know, that, that uh, Prison Break game came out this week, A Way Out... Oh, right, I don't know yeah. if it's out, but the reviews are out. Yeah, yeah. And and I think and people have like reviewers like forced themselves to play that co-op to play it because you have to, you know. Yeah. And I almost like Nintendo should almost market this game more that way because I think it would tell people more of what to expect because it is just it's hard to explain, but there is just something really fun to play this with another person. And if you're in that you know scenario, like maybe if you have kids or something to play it with, I assume it's extra fun that way. Um, but I am enjoying it on that level. I do think the game is too aggressively simple for its own good in some ways. That like, I think levels are pretty creatively designed. But whenever you feel like you're getting into like figuring out a mechanic that you're going to use to solve something, you realize it's one step simpler than you were thinking. Uh-huh. And it always feels like it's just coming up one step too short. And, you know, Kirby is an easier series than other ones. But I do feel like the recent ones I've played, like the 3DS ones, were just a notch enough higher that I never felt that level of like intellectual disappointment so consistently. And I do think that's maybe what separates this from the other ones. But it is fun. Um, you know, it also does have less of a sense of visual identity because like Planet Robobot is about like space and mechs and like it all is around that theme. Star Allies feels like it's kind of like you could also call it Kirby's Greatest Hits because every world that you go to, it's like there's no real overarching sense of like what this world is, what kind of levels you're going to see. It's just a lot of different... And the levels often look beautiful and have cool conceits around them, but it doesn't feel like there's a visual like aesthetic progression in the way good you know Nintendo platformers tend to do. So I think that's a flaw with it too. But I, I'm enjoying it. I Look, I'm a sucker for this kind of game. I like this sort of thing. It's fun in co-op. This is totally for me, and I am enjoying it. Uh, and there is just something indescribably charming and fun about it, even if it is kind of a walk in the park. But you know the thing about walks in the park? They're pleasurable. Sure. They're nice. You go to a park, you walk in it. Why do you do that? It's because it's nice out. It's easy. It's relaxing. It makes you feel good. Kirby Star Allies is the same way. Is it a walk in the park? Yes. I might not use that as a derogatory term for this game, though. To be fair, you usually don't have to pay $60 to take a walk in the park. Sure. But, you know, there's a lot of things we do in video games that would be free in real life. Uh, we'll, we'll leave that to your imagination. I meant, like, golf or playing tennis or something. Oh, I thought you meant, like, murdering people. No, I mean, that is... It's, it's free if you don't get caught. We'll leave that to your imagination. All right. Kirby Star Allies, it's okay. Uh, there's so many games on Switch. You decide if you have time for it. Uh, I also bought, and I have not launched it yet, the JRPG Lost Sphere, because it's on my to-play oh, list. Oh, right. That's the and Tokyo RPG factory yes, one? Yes. It did have a pretty significant sale on the Switch eShop, so I bought it now, and I'll see when I get to it. But Because uh, I think the next game I know I'm buying new is God of War. 
And yeah. I know we're both probably going to play that. I'm sort of side-eyeing Far Cry 5 because the review okay. should drop in a couple of days. I have no idea if I'm going to get that game or not. Yeah, I will not, but if you do, I'm interested to hear what you say because yeah. you like that series. So Far Cry 4 is really fucking good. Yeah. It was your game of the year, 20-something. 20, 20, that was 2014 because that was okay. like the... That's like that one of the, the year with worst no years of video games I have ever been alive for. That like my favorite game that year was like a, a like a decent iteration on a really good first person shooter for like three years before that. <laughs> my number one that year was the new Smash Bros. Because Nintendo had a great 2014. Sure, yeah, but yeah, uh, if, no one else it was did. a great 2014 if you owned the console that nobody owned, the Wii U or the 3DS. But yes, yeah. Um, anyway, anything else to say this week, Sean? I feel like. We have talked about a lot of stuff, you know, yeah. recommendations. A number of different stuffs I believe we have addressed. You know, we're saying you should you should play Celeste, you should play Burnout Paradise. Oh yeah. You should watch the X Files, you should watch DB Super, you should watch A Wrinkle in Time, you should skip Tomb Raider. Oh, I thought that was I thought that was our most glowing review was for the Tomb Raider movie. We learned a lot about video game movies today, I think. And we learned a little about ourselves. But especially like so the, here's here's the stuff so so watch Wrinkle in Time, don't watch Tomb Raider. Play Burnout Paradise. Play maybe play Kirby if you have some friends. Definitely play Celeste. Uh, watch the X Files season eleven. Watch all one hundred thirty one episodes of Dragon Ball Super, and watch the only good video game movie that is easily accessible. Go watch Persona Three: The Movie Number Two, Midsummer Night's Dream on Netflix. Available now. It's been up there for four years. Will be up there for four more. I don't know. So watch it while you can. 